Grand Canyon University is Arizona's premier private Christian university committed to providing next-generation education. GCU offers over 200 academic programs, many in high-demand fields across nine colleges. We keep our rigorous curriculum relevant by partnering with industry leaders and advisory boards. Earn your degree online, in the evening, or on our vibrant Phoenix campus. Find your purpose at GCU, where advanced technologies drive education. Private, Christian, affordable, nonprofit. Visit gcu.edu. Live from Tully's Bar in the left ventricle of Waterford City, it's Snug Chats. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. But what it is is it's the it's the Christmas special of the Snug Chat. Oh lovely. Yeah, so we're one in of the, the elect. We are one of the elect. Yeah, we're one of the elect. And the interesting thing about it is we're in the um, we're in the Tully's Snug as usual. But the interesting thing is this is now seven men. I can't get a woman into the snug. I could always do a high-pitched voice. <laughs> this is where I double-check to say we are actually recording, yeah. So because we have to start off with this, Jim, because we because we are a Christmas special. Do you like Christmas? Mm, yes, I do. I was over in the granary earlier. I was meeting somebody, and I was waiting for them to come in. Mm. Silent Night came on, right. and uh, I was seven years old again. I'm waiting for Santa, and I was going to Midnight Mass down in the... Uh, down the folly. Yep. Uh, I'd be a sucker for Christmas. I, I'm not an old romantic, you know what I mean. And there's probably a part of me that people who know me would say that fucker's a Scrooge. <laughs> um, what's he saying? But I do. I love it. How um, old were you when the Sacred Heart was built? Crikey, I don't know. Was it around 1970? Around I know that, I was yeah. an altar boy uh, okay. on the day of the first whatever first yeah. mass there. Um, b- before then, uh, there was a church over on the Ursuline Road. Um, oh, that's right, Jim. In the grounds of the old Ursuline Convent. It was called, for some reason, the Chapel of Ease. Yeah, I don't yeah, know what that means. The, the Ferryman Chapel is called the Chapel of Ease as well. Yeah, it's some kind of thing. Maybe when you're waiting for a proper chapel, um, right. you get the Chapel of Ease. But uh, <laughs> I was, in, I went over there, and maybe we'll come back to it, because it was yeah. a really, really, in terms of working in the theatre, yeah. my first experience of the church was was uh, I think had some kind of subliminal effect on how I ended up doing the theatre thing. Right. But to to answer your question, I I don't know the date of the opening of the church uh, in Johns Park, but it must have been around about 1970. Um, I think was um, was it was pegged. What I'm going to do is I'm going to double up on the recording of this because I managed to. Um Sometimes. What does double up on the recording mean? Just no, going to explain this. I'm just going to record it twice, basically. It's it goes film. criminal, is it? Well, see, I'm using one of Wayne Brown's uh, fantastical devices here, and there's just far too many buttons on it for my liking. And Wonderful I've, sound I think I've man pressed Wayne. the right one. Yeah, yeah. Come here. So, so yeah, I think, oh, yeah, the church, I think, didn't pick TV and our crew selling, like, raffle tickets for cars and stuff around that time. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And there was a great, great man. Uh, they named the Butler Centre after him, Johnny right. Butler. Right. And your own grandfather. Yep, yep. Andy Skelton. Andy, yep. Yeah, they were great, great men uh, who, who uh, I suppose, essentially helped to build that church and raise the money for it. Um, I was lucky to have grown up in, in John's Park on the yeah. German Road. Uh, proper St. John's Parkers would have considered that the German Road wasn't really part of John's Park. But in yeah. fact, that's just a bit of jealousy because we were there before them. And uh, I'm saying that for the attention of Joe Lonergan, if he's listening. <laughs> um, but I do remember well as a young fellow and being yeah. very young as an altar boy, being conscious of this kind of, uh, what I would have thought were old men at the time. Yeah. In fact, there were probably men who were in their 40s uh, who were not just great community men in terms of the Sacred Heart Church, but also in terms of the of John's Park, which had like uh, let's face it a very bad reputation. 
Um, uh, I remember in, in my childhood people referring to it as there was a, a, an American soap on uh, called The Naked City and John's Park used to be known as uh, the, natives, the Naked City and, and, and men like uh, your grandfather Andy Skelton, Johnny mm. Butler and, and so many, many, so many more and I say men, it was, I think you know, Peg TV accepted it was, yeah. as I remember, largely men um, it did an awful lot, not just to bring on the church, but uh, to do uh, a huge amount of work in giving John's Park a better sense of itself. Um, so I don't know where that from. Do you know what? You said something interesting there because I think that <clears throat> I was talking to. Um, actually, I was talking to Councillor Jason Murphy earlier on today. We mentioned he's a previous snug chat attendee. Mm. And he, he, he's big, he's very religious, he's a religious guy, right? Uh, no, no, he's, I'm not saying he's very religious, he has his faiths, right? He's a Catholic. Um, but he, 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 he recently started going to Mass again, every Sunday, and told me that he went to St. John's last Sunday, and there was 20 people in the church. Okay? Um, so you tell me that you were an altar boy. I was, for my sins. For your sins. And there are many... Okay, we'll get, to, we'll get to that later. But but it's an interesting. <laughs> so another pint before we get to that. There's more. I've got them. I've got them on a time release from the bar. Every fifteen minutes, a pint will arrive. Um, but no, what are your memories of being an altar boy? I can remember the first time I went over there, um, and I can remember why I wanted to go there. I must have been maybe six or seven. My older brother John uh, was there before me, and and uh, I remember Harry Flynn was altar boy in chief. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. I I, t- I tell you what I think I loved about the church from the very beginning. Probably, certainly from my, the first thing, first time I can remember anything about yeah. it was the ritual. Just the whole ceremony uh, of it, uh, um, and and at that time the uh, the priest used to have his back to the congregation. Like I don't know whether that what the reason for that was. Um, Throughout the whole mass, pretty much, apart from when he, for instance, give the gospel and give the gospel sermon, but the actual right. uh, uh, c- consecration and all that was done with his back to you. I don't know why that was. It was okay. pretty. It was pretty crazy. But I loved. I absolutely was entranced as a child by the the whole ceremonial aspect of it. Uh, I loved all the gear they wore, and, right. and, and uh, I remember the the uh, my brother having this sutan and surplice. And, and uh, I just, I kind of thought the costume, it must have been something to do with the costume part okay. of it. Um, but being entranced and enchanted by all of that. And, and, and uh, I said to myself, I'd love to have a go at that. Um, but I would have been very introverted and very quiet. Yeah. Um, and so the idea of going out in public and being up there on the altar didn't particularly appeal to me. Right. So so decided to have a go at Holy. it. I'd say maybe... Maybe six or seven or eight. So a six, a six or seven-year-old introverted uh, Jim yes, Nolan. you got me. <laughs> in a church. Um, do, do you remember any, was there any inappropriateness in my priest? Did you ever get any slaps? Any, any, any inappropriate touching of any kind? Uh, and even if I did, I wouldn't be telling you. No, but... But, but as it happens, no. Uh, quite the find, contrary. I find that... What I mean important most or, uh, more so is the fact that slapping and, and, and all that kind of stuff was, was, seemed to be just accepted. In the I went to Scholar Cohen Christian yeah. Brothers and I went to Mount Sinai Secondary and we yeah. can come back to that if you want to talk about slapping. But <laughs> yeah. in, in terms of the church, absolutely not. Yeah. Uh, there was a priest over there um, 
I think he was the parish priest at the time, Father O'Gorman, Father Mossy O'Gorman, and I subsequently, years later, came across him as a parish priest yeah. up in Ardmore when he was pushing on for retirement. He would have been sort of our gaffer um, as, okay. as an altar boy, and that man was saintly in my view. Well, it's, uh, it seems to me that whenever we, as in my era, look back towards the 60s and 70s, we just tend to think that, that every person in authority was just an absolute bastard. Yeah. yeah, and and all I can say is that the evidence of my own, yeah. you know, was my evidence was different. Um, I remember, like, as I got older, I remember there was a particular priest whose name I won't say. Yeah, and and it's not that he was any way abusive, but he was a tough, stern old bastard, like, and I wasn't yeah. particularly fond of him. Right. The vast majority of them. I remember him, um, uh, Father Lacey, who subsequently left the priesthood. Uh, to presumably because he fell in love and wanted to get married, yeah. and uh, like if if he, you know, if 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 he became some way uh, ostracized by the church as hmm. a result of falling in love with somebody, then that's I suppose a failing in the church, yes. as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I was maybe I was just lucky, maybe nobody fancied me, but uh, <laughs> uh, these were these were. Like my experience of yeah. and I can only speak to that. Yeah. Uh, I particularly, I was really uh, very, very fond of that man, Father O'Gorman. He, he really minded us uh, in a very proper sense. And the minute you even start talking that way, he yeah. minded us. What do you mean he minded you? Okay. Uh, yeah. What I mean by that was that he, it seemed to me he was a decent man. Okay. Uh, I remember uh, every Christmas when we were uh, in the Chapel of Ease in John's Park, we get hauled into town into Delicata's Cafe right. for, uh, you know, I was going to say burger and chips. I don't even know if they had burgers then, but we certainly got chips. Are these the same Delicata's that are sitting around today? Uh, they'd be the same family, yeah. Okay, they had yeah. a chipper next door to Sinnott's. That's right, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. The old record shop yeah. in John Street. There was a, a chip shop there and a sort of cafe part of it at the back and the takeaway right. part was at the front. And that was our Christmas party. Like, they were innocent times. Uh, but I mention it only to say is like that was one of the fondest memories okay. of my youth. Um, but coming back to that that thing of what was it that attracted you to it? Uh, um, the my, ex, my my I'm certain if someone says to me, well, why did, how did you end up in the theatre? I mean that's a long story, but I know the beginning of that story, chapter yeah. one, verse one, would be uh, my experience of religion. Um, that it seemed to me there were parallels between the the. Uh, uh, religion, uh, the whole ritual mm. element of it, the ceremonial aspect of it, the notion of suspending belief. Okay. Uh, which which essentially, is what, essentially is that, what religion is. Yeah, it's yeah. at the heart of it. Mm. Um, and again, we might we might come back to that uh, in, in terms of what I believe or don't believe. But that notion of suspension of disbelief, the yeah. act of faith that people make when they come into a church, um, was something that I was subliminally maybe as a kid was just enormously engaged by mm. and, and then I loved the whole acting out of that okay. um, and it certainly left a mark um, but but in terms of, of your wider question about well you know did anybody f- touch you up or feel you up no. The, just because this is the Christmas special we should have some jingle bells for effect doesn't here. sound like one in the last five minutes <laughs> <laughs> oh some festive abuse no um I want to have. I want to get one underlying or overlying John's Park Christmas memory from you, or maybe to phrase, phrase that just before that. If I say Christmas to you, what's the first thing you think about in terms of your past? My mother and father. 
you know, uh, my dad died in 1997. I wasn't a child or anything like that. He was 65 years old, which yeah. was, you know, far too young and all the rest oh, of it. Yeah. But my memories, like most people's, adults or children, are, my memories of Christmas are bound up in uh, my memory of my family yeah. during that time. And, and uh, like everybody else in John's Park, we weren't spoiled for money, so there wasn't a big load of presents and so mm. forth. Um, but I remember my father... Uh, these wouldn't be your presents from Santa. These would be your father going into Fish Kennedy's shop. Beside Delicatos, okay. that happened. We're working our way down the street there. Uh, this the newsagent's yeah. shop, and and we got our Hotspurs and our Victors and our Beanos, and like those annuals. Especially there was a football monthly or something like that that had a football. I was a huge soccer fan. Yeah, and what is sport? Huddersfield Town. Oh, who okay. are now in the Premier League. Darren. Wow. I followed them from the fourth to the first, back to the fourth, and now they're in the Premier League. My father, in 1966, Huddersfield came to, to, to Waterford okay. to play a friendly game yeah. when I was six or seven or eight years old. And uh, Jimmy Nicholson was the captain of Northern Ireland at the time, and he was the captain of Huddersfield. And for some reason, they landed in Kilcone to play a friendly, and my father said, we'll go over Right. He sentenced me to a lifetime <laughs> of supporting. I'm going to make an assumption here, uh, Jim. Darren, we're drifting now. Have you got any I'll, editorial we'll back. control? Oh, over get, this? No, no, I don't. I don't. It's manic. It's manic. It's, it's manic. Job. It's manic. It's manic. It's manic. <laughs> I'm going to make an assumption here. I'm going to assume that there is no Waterford branch of the Huddersfield United <laughs> Supporters Club. That would be a safe assumption. <laughs> <laughs> it's a one-man show. But there's a soccer annual. There's a soccer annual, and that was part of. Yeah, the, yeah. The, getting those annuals were yeah. huge for me. Mm. Um, and I remember one Christmas in particular. I can't tell you what year it was, but I mentioned earlier that I was, we lived in, I was going to say I was born, but I wasn't. I was born in Ordna Grena. Yeah. And after a year, we shipped out to John's Park when I was a year old. Uh, and, and we were blessed because uh, the German road uh, was, in fact, the German, Italian, Czech, Polish, Spanish road. Okay. And all of the, so many of the emigrant or immigrant glass workers who were hired in the aftermath of the Second World War came to live there to set up the first uh, glass factory yeah. and uh, we kind of grew up with all those we grew up as I often say in six different languages it was fantastic I can't speak any of them but I remember right. them being spoken but there was one man uh, Mr. Muller who lived unusually on our side of the road most of the glass factory workers were in specially built glass houses or glass factory <laughs> okay. glass houses glass you, factory you. houses yeah um, but Manor, on the other yeah. side of the road but two doors down from us uh, number 34 and number 35 was Mr. Muller and Mr. Muller apart from whatever he did in the glass factory was a brilliant carpenter and uh, he built this fort you know like a, a American like a, like a cowboys and Indians oh like a wig, wigwam is it yeah but it was the fort that the presumably the American soldiers protected oh, okay. themselves yeah. from against yeah. the Indians yeah and so we got this uh, present of a fort that he had handmade. Yeah. And I remember him, uh, this arriving as, at the, you know, this wasn't from Santa. Again, this was from Mr. Muller. Yeah. And I thought, what a, what a beautiful, wonderful present. And so that's a very special memory of Christmas. All right, okay, okay. Um, which, which leads us on to the, to the question that I ask every guest who falls and staggers into the snug. Do you believe I walked it? in. You I walked in, you might stagger out, Jay. You might. Usually I have to drug, drug them first to get them in, but... Um, do you believe in God? Wow. I tell you what I believe in. Is I believe in the possibility. Okay. Um, 
the whole the, at, at the heart of it all is, is two two things faith an act of faith and also the, the word mystery that it is a mystery it's not it's not uh, there's no proof um, yep. I remember John Halligan a while back saying uh, that he uh, he he didn't he didn't believe in God. He said there's no such thing as God, and I know that for a fact. He said that, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, imagine to know something like that as a fact. Mm. I don't know where John got that, but John and I would part company on that. I believe in the possibility of an other. What that other is? Another being or another place? Do you know what? Um, my my mom has a an extraordinary faith, which I know is shared by millions of people. Yeah, that it's one day. She's 84 now, and I love her to bits. Mm. But that one day, she'll see my dad, her husband, again. Yeah. And uh, that's massive, as a conviction. Like, she's absolutely convinced of it. And I couldn't say that I share that conviction. Okay. What I adore, though, is the possibility. Not the possibility necessarily just of seeing my father again, but of that other. So, but actually, if I, just to say, it doesn't bother me whether I'm right or wrong about okay. that. What I, what I get mostly in terms of religion uh, is, is what I got when I was a child, which was that uh, passionate uh, consolation of the possibility. Mm. Not the possibility that there's another life. Actually, no, the, 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 the communal celebration the idea of, of whether it's 20 people, as you said, that Jason said, yep. you know, in yep. St. John's Church, or in the little church where I go to in Ballylanin, uh, where maybe 40, 50 or 60 people, maybe 100 people gather every Sunday to share something. It's a shared belief and a shared engagement with something possibly bigger than themselves. It's not the farm, it's not the shop, it's yeah, not the school. What gets me about that is there's very little that you need to do except just go along to, to this church. You know, sometimes when these people are asked to do slightly more, they can become quite hypocritical about you know, religion. Um, for me, though, I always think, um, and I'm going to get quite coarse here for a second, and it's going to be the most controversial sentence. Right, you're, you're stop ever, yourself. No, I'm not stop. going to stop Pull yourself. back. It's going to be the most coarse Take a pause. and controversial sentence you're ever going to hear on a podcast, all right? I guarantee you that money. And please stop. I have to, I can't you? I have to, I have to say, <laughs> the train has left the station. I'm going to press this button here. <laughs> um, I, my poor mother, when I say this to her, um, and I don't have to use this word, but it just seems to just flow. Think of your mother now, Think before you say it. <laughs> and it goes back to the line, right? You said, do I believe in God? And the line I say is, well, I, if, my issue with this is, if there is a God, then he's a cunt. You've certainly said the word. <laughs> yeah, and okay. it's, it's 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 that word is is is, is, is harsh and it's shocking, and it's uh, but my point is that I, I I there are some people who tend to move the goalposts in terms of when you talk about God, and I say, well, look, God just gives us all uh, free will. Isn't free that will. what they call it? But that's just what somebody said. You know, mm. I mean, there's a great. A documentary on Netflix now by um, Morgan Freeman um, called God, where he goes around the world and investigates the idea of God in different religions, different cultures. And I just wonder that we're 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 within a very small time in, in the history of the world. We're in a very small time period, and twenty people in St John's Church last Sunday, mm. ten years ago, would have been 
you know, would have been 100 people. Absolutely. 20 years ago, yeah. full church. So what's happening? Are the religious people dying? You know, is that, is, that what's, is that what's happening? I mean, for me, religion as an organised um, belief system is, is deeply flawed because in the, in the 60s, you know, you couldn't eat meat on a Friday. It was just different things that just suddenly went by the wayside. And who, who, who sent them by the wayside? Just men. This whole belief system is based on men. So it's a storybook that that's believed in this corner of the world and small other parts of the world. And somebody else, they believe something else and somebody else, they believe something else. But I just tend to, I, 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 I sometimes get quite arrogant when I think about it because I look at the, those churches, the church that you go to, and I'm the one of Ferrybank is actually quite busy on a Sunday. And I genuinely say, I say to myself, look at all those you know, seemingly intelligent people in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And it's, yeah. It, there's a certain arrogance in that. I understand that. You know, I go back to the point of the see, controversial you line. You couldn't defend it. Like, like the notion of, yeah. of me trying to answer that by saying, but listen, Darren, yeah. there's no question, first of all, I'd, like, I'm, I won't use the word you use. I, I, mm-hmm. I've written that. I put it in a play once, and my editor probably wanted to take it out, and it's the only time I allowed myself to be censored. It was said in the play, but not in the publication. We'll get back to that in a second, because we'll, it's we'll, just a we'll, word. Yeah, okay, we'll, go on. we'll come back to the word. Yeah. Um, but it's very difficult to argue against the notion that if there is a God, wasn't he some bastard? Yeah. To visit on us all the horrors of yeah. what it is to be alive. Yeah. And I'm not just talking about all the big things, the wars and the pestilence and the starvation, but at the level of individual suffering. Yeah. It's very difficult Especially to say, if you're up there, God, thank you. Thank yeah. you for that. I, I can't explain that. I can't justify it. I can't. Yeah. I'm not that interested, I have to say to you, in the notion of there being some supreme Godhead, male, yeah. female, or indifferent. Yeah. What I... I'm, Apart from what I said already about the notion of communal gathering and celebration, mm-hmm. um, which is my primary interest in why I go to church, but leaving that aside, one of the things that uh, this God person was meant to have done, whether he ever did or not, mm-hmm. but, but it's statistically sure that there was a man called Jesus who yep. lived on this planet. Um, whether he was anybody's son or what became of him, yep. maybe he was just... Poor guy, he was a carpenter, and he got in. You know, he got, he got, <laughs> he got, he got confused by somebody else. Who knows? But yeah. like, uh, what what comes out in the gospel, whether he ever said it or not, but the, as recorded by the four evangelists, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, yeah. there is stuff in there that, frankly, if whether there's ever any afterlife or before life or anything like that, uh, I'm talking essentially about the uh, the Sermon on the Mount. The, the whole, as a principle, as a way of living. I'd, I'd be more interested in the Jesus man than I am yeah. in Jesus as man than I am in Jesus but as the romantic. Son of God. I, I, I love, I quite like the depiction of... Um, uh, oh, by the way, just to bring you into the snub chat with us, uh, uh, Jim is drinking a pint of Guinness. I'm drinking one of my usual weird craft beers. Why do you get product placement here now? Yeah, Guinness pay me 5000 No, nothing. I get nothing. It's just because the lads don't have Carlsberg. I'd, I'd normally get a few bob from Carlsberg to say uh, the word Carlsberg. Oh, Carlsberg. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I don't know why you had to suddenly commercialise this wonderful conversation we had. But well, I, yeah, I think just to bring people into the room, bob to bring people... No, to you bring didn't have people. to mention Guinness. <laughs> Carlsberg. Carlsberg. Any of that stuff. Do you like Carlsberg? 
I'll tell you what I do like is being back in McLaughlin's. Oh, yeah. 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 And then this is just me way, diverting you away from the religion. No, no, we'll get back to it. We'll get back. I've, I've, it's, all, it's all a bit like it's a backlog in my mind. But just to back for a second, I have this. I so love the image. You don't want to talk image. about no? Oh, we will talk about that in a second. <laughs> Ali and Co. Because, um, no, hold on a second. So you're trying, I see what you're trying to do here, Jim. I'm going to turn it. I just want to do this in. So, Darren, tell me. <laughs> <laughs> no, hold on. I, I love the scene in Ben Hur. Where, where, where Charlton Heston, Ben Rock character, is being dragged along, and, and next minute you get the shot of a, um, the carpenter. Just for the record, that was Darren Belching there. It was, I did, yeah, I did, yeah. <laughs> That wasn't me. <laughs> I thought that was an audible sound. Say like sorry you called me to do this interview. No, no, this is good. It's a Christmas special, Jim, Christmas special. But there's a great scene where, where the, the camera's behind Jesus and he's making a shelf, <laughs> or he's doing something, a DVD. Being a carpenter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and he sp- he goes out and he gives the water. No water for him, and that that's a great scene. And it, and it sums up for me the romantic notion that's out there of Jesus. And people find it very difficult to let go of such yeah. of such notions. Why so, would you use the word romantic? Jesus was a revolutionary, and it turned out that that was a big problem for him. That's why they got rid of him. Oh my God! You see, oh fuck, you know, I, I I am I'm one of my the very first article I ever I ever wrote was and it was printed in the World of Today. And it was called Is There a God? And I talked oh, about God, this. There's nowhere else to go after that. It was all downhill. I was downhill <laughs> very fast after that. Very fast. After that. There's, no, there's, no way, there's no way for me. But I, 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 mean, I'm curious as to why I'm fascinated so much with the idea. I love the story of the nativity. I love the story of the. Of, it's, but do you know what? I had this idea once for a, 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 a script, right? Do you remember years ago there was a program came out on television called Smallville? Which was basically about yes. Superman the early years. Yes, I, I wanted to write Nazareth, which was like Jesus the teenage years, because like nobody has ever written about teenage you know, Jesus the teenage years. Do you know what I mean? Was he getting spots? Was he was you know the first time he had an erect penis? Jesus, Jesus. Okay, but but it was playing with other. <laughs> just going to take a pause there. <laughs> Oh, I always okay. okay. Okay, so Jim, oh, Jim, Jim is suddenly realizing that he's in a snog with a man talking about Jesus' erect penis when he's Why do you four, think uh, you've, you've been? thirteen. That was known as a pregnant pause. <laughs> that's known in the business as a pregnant pause. But I, I, I thought that because nobody. But then again, that's not a question. Why is there such a big gap in his life? He went to boarding school. <laughs> yeah, it's a, look. It's a tricky one. Um, <laughs> apart from the gap. I, I, I mean, there's so much you can't make sense of, but I would say this back to you, just yep. in terms of your, what seems to me, darn anxieties. Oh, <laughs> don't worry about that any of really If you that. don't believe in any of it, that's good too. But the, 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 you know, what I love is, in terms of, like, do you believe in God, is that it's not actually an issue. It's not a problem. No, no. I do acknowledge that we've... That, that was oh, that was your glasses. Yeah. Sorry. I, I do acknowledge that uh, the, the matter of religion has been the source of... So many wars and yeah. conflicts and all of that. But can and I ask you this? Absolutely regrettable. Do you think that in Ireland right now, people are just afraid to actually commit to a real opinion? Like, like for example, I'll give you an example. My own mother, right? She, I think, I, I think that she struggles with it. But she, but she is, she was brought up a Catholic. She doesn't go to mass anymore, right? But she would still bless herself passing a church. Actually, do all of the things that mm. uh, you know a good Catholic is supposed to do. Um, but when I get in a conversation with her about this, she struggles because I think if, she, if if people were to really think about it, they might say, 
it's nonsense, isn't it? It's just nonsense. So they don't let themselves think about it. Mm. Because the, the, the idea of an afterlife is so comforting that they'd rather have it than not. Do, do you know what I mean? Well, I, I would say, first of all, about that coming back to my mother, yeah. the conviction that one day she will meet her her husband again, yeah, yeah. Uh, is is like why wouldn't you want to believe that? Exactly. Yeah. Um, someone my wife truly that, said to that's me. That's romantic about, though, okay. hmm? Well it's an act of faith. Okay. And and uh, you know, romantic yeah sure, maybe. Maybe you know uh, but like why wouldn't you want to believe that? And why wouldn't it be legitimate to believe in that as a possibility? Yeah. Um I don't necessarily believe in that part of it. Um but why would you deny it for somebody else? No, I would never want to do that. And I, and I, I, again, I like talking about it, but I would never ridicule somebody else for your beliefs. I don't do that, um, unless, for the record, it is Jason Murphy, in which case I will. But, uh, but, but, but no, I, I, I don't, I don't want to do that. But I, I am fascinated with the idea of it because it is like the bottle of Guinness and a few other different things. Maybe one could argue local papers. Um, the audience is dying. It's mm. getting older and older and older. Yeah. We are in such a small, as I said, like, such a small period in history here that maybe in a hundred years' time, like we look back on the people who believed in Zeus and all those Roman gods, and we laugh at them. You know, mm. Are, mm. are people going to laugh at us believing in this crazy guy on a, on maybe a cross? Maybe so, and maybe they'll be right too. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, I suppose where I'd part company with you is what seems to me, <laughs> even if it's only just for the sake of this yep. conversation. Yeah. Uh, a determination to get to some kind of resolution about it. I love the uncertainty of it. But is that just you sitting on the fence, though? It it may be. Um, But I don't think there's any, you know, I don't think there's any sitting on the fence about the things I'm sure of, which is that uh, there was a man called Jesus who lived in this world, uh, and it seemed to me uh, whose politics were revolutionary, or was revolutionary, whatever the word is, um... And it was why he ended up in a shitload of trouble. Was he pro-choice? Was he? <laughs> I, well, as, as I say, I wasn't one of the four evangelists, so I don't know. Um, but I do know he, he, he threw the Pharisees out of the temple. Yeah. Like, which is very close to saying to the bankers, the bankers. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, that's not the way, that's not the way to, you know, to, to, to run a, a world that's just and equal uh, and, and that favours the dispossessed and the poor and the exploited. And Jesus did all that, um, and, and like whether he ever ascended into heaven, frankly, is not of a huge concern to me. Okay, I'd be in, attracted to what he was up to when he was here amongst us. Well, and, let me ask you another question. Now. Do you know the way you have people? Are we going to spend the next? No, no, no. About, this, this is, is Monday evening. Exactly. Weeks before exactly. Christmas, yeah, yeah. Quite pint in Tully's. 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 Yeah. Did you have a Guinness there? No. Oh, yeah. <laughs> mm. Let's move on. No, no, just the last point. It's not really about religion as such, but more about these people. Do you ever, do you ever have these people who go to, like, a, um, a clairvoyant? Do you believe in that? Do you know what they, they, they go and you go and you pay 50 euro for, like, a half an hour, and they sit in front of you and they say, you're not happy about something. Mm. You know, your mother mm. passed recently. But do you mean the ones who are in the caravans along the promenade? Not so much them. I, you see... I'm open, I'm not, I'm not religious, but I'm not closing the door on the fact that it could be an afterlife, right? Mm. I just don't really believe in the man-made 
idea of a god, you know. But I do listen to people who tell me that he's been to clairvoyance, and some of them sort of say, "Cakes my better way." Yeah, I'm like, okay, but how would he know that now? I mean, how would she have known that? How I don't get it. And they say, yeah, I didn't. I, I, yeah. You didn't let them see your Facebook. Or, no, nothing. Yeah. And I think, well, maybe there's something. So the the final question in this little 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 segment is, is is it's not a little segment. Oh, I know. It's, it's, it's gargantuan. For a bit now. It has. It has. It has. Uh, all the editing later on. Um, is I suppose what I'm asking then is that clairvoyance and the whole supernatural. Mm. Do you believe in the supernatural? That like ghosts, you know, um, mystics. Have you ever had an experience with the supernatural? No, uh, not to, not in the sense of sort of lying in bed and then the ghost at the end of the bed. Yeah. Like for instance, we live Trudy and I live in an old farmhouse, and uh, there was a man out there, Mikey Welch, uh, who would have believed in ghosts, and, yeah. and uh, who, who uh, people would have said to me, you know, Mikey will turn up there. And, and, and I would say back, you know, when? And I, let's hope so. Because what things I heard about that, yeah. and I'd love to have met him. Uh, he hasn't shown so far, but he might turn up tomorrow. Right. Um, I have had no direct experience of okay. it. Uh, I do think this, that, uh, for instance, when my father died, yeah. um, and this relates to our earlier conversation about an afterlife and all the rest of it, that uh, people live on, if not... Uh, physically, that they live on, even if not spiritually, that they live on in one's memory. Okay. And that's how we, uh, um, that's how they become potentially immortal. Okay. Uh, that, that, for instance, my father will remain alive for me in my memory. Yeah. Um, and he's a presence in my life in that sense. Uh, but I can't say that he's been at the end of the bed. Okay. But, but he's around. Do you ever heard a line that, um, about a memory... A memory, what a memory actually is, is only a memory of the last time you remembered something. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Well, I don't know. I mean, like you renew your memories each time, like a, like a car battery almost. You renew your memories each time you remember it. Mm-hmm. So if you stop thinking about something, the sooner or later it will just die away. So your memory of your father is the la- is a memory of the last time you remember it. <laughs> It's like checkpoints yes, all the time. Yeah, I understand you. Yeah, like I, I don't know. Um, sounded like Ray Darcy. There. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, I. One of the things I'd say is that I don't trouble myself all. The, you know about like about going to church. At this, yeah. You know about sort of is that the right thing to do? Am I being this, that, or the other? Do yeah. I really believe in this? I remember as a kid looking out as an altar boy into the congregation on a Sunday morning down in the Sacred Heart or in the Chapel of Ease and looking into the heart of those people even as a child and it seemed to me then and I've often witnessed it since that people are there for that half hour and they're away in their own thinking about how did that go I have to go to work in the morning I wonder will I go for a pint later how's the kids and I have to pay for the and this, that and the other they're legitimate you know you know, we're human beings, we're imperfect, we're flawed, but they choose to gather. There's nothing right or wrong about that in principle. And, and I'm one of them. I sing, and this is something that I'm oh. so proud to talk about. Go on. I I'm, I'm, was dragged into, a, 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 like the only time I sing 
is when I'm pissed and right. I sing Raglan Road of Hamas three times because okay. it's the only song I can fucking remember. Fair enough. Right? Lyrics are tough. Lyrics but are tough. a few years ago, out where I live in Ballylanine, a mate of mine, Pat Powers, says, will you join the choir? And I said, what? And he said, and he asked me in a pub and I said, yes. And I turned up the following Thursday and I've been in that choir for seven or eight years now. And it's a different world out there, isn't it? I, 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 I wouldn't say it's that different than anywhere else. It just happens to be where where I live um, yeah. but but I joined the choir and uh, I don't really care if all of us who are in, not just in the choir but down in the congregation Father Condon up at the church yeah. great great man up at the altar um, if we have it wrong you don't if, care of course not well absolutely not what I know is there's a wonderful sense of the communal gathering and the notion of the possibility in something else okay. is the same reason why I work in the theatre. The possibility of something else, of some kind of transcendence. But well, mostly the possibility of us gathering, whether it's in across the road in the theatre or out in Ballylanine or St John's mm-hmm. Church, in the hope that... And, and in, maybe, I wouldn't say conviction, but, but in the hope that something transcendent will happen here's the glasses again I'm going to move the glasses yeah well you know what that's a great way to end part one of the snug chat promise me you won't mention religion oh we're moving on with that now we're moving on in the next half we're back for part two we should have see I can insert a little ad break in there you know Shaw's almost nationwide sorry you get the ads yeah no but in fairness to tell you, they did offer to, uh, to, to but I just, I, 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 the reason why I did these, I just wanted to, to be, um, it was never for any monetary reasons, I just I just liked the idea of doing them and having them. Mm. Well, you said a very important thing, we were unfortunately off the tape, and maybe this is going to be edited, maybe it's not. Go on. Whatever. But that notion of the importance of record, mm. and I'm not, I'm not saying because you have me here this day, but the yeah. notion of, of recording people's stories yeah. uh, is you know, is obviously at the heart of what interests me, not just in the theatre, but especially the radio documentaries that I would have made, yeah. which are, you know, are at least as important How many have you done? Couldn't tell you, maybe three or four, not right. very many, and I yeah. don't do them anymore because the broadcasting authority uh, have come up with this extraordinary, again, this, you can edit it or I can no, use it or not, but they... they when I, when I used to make them first, uh, WLR, whom I made them for, yeah. uh, used to do all the paperwork, and I didn't have to do that. Right. And now they make the person who's presenting the stuff and making the programs also do the paperwork. Okay. The station, the host station, can't do that. Um, but more important than that, what put me off them was, and I, I find it really bizarre, and as somebody who you know is a journalist yourself, I'm sure you'll empathize with this, is that they in the application, they now make you... Uh, forecast what your you know the running orders yeah. the scenario you can't just tell them this is broadly speaking what this is going to be yeah. about you've got to tell them minute for minute this is the sequence whereas the very nature of radio documentary is I'm going to talk to Darren and ask you a question and you say X, Y and Z then I'm going to go to Y and say Darren said X, Y and Z yeah, what exactly, do you think? Yeah, yeah. and then you synthesize in other words you can't know ah Jesus no the very nature of imagine trying to do so, it with this podcast yeah, so I what gave are you going to talk about with Jim I have nothing yeah, to do I gave it up um, yes. and I really regret it because they're uh, 
if people said to me, well, when you look back at what you've done in the theatre and making the radio documentaries, is there anything in particular? I would say the radio documentaries, especially the one on the glass factory, yeah. are, are something that I'm at least as proud of as I would be of, say, a play like The Salvage Shop. Or, I know, they, um, are, they're, they are fantastic. They're, they're not, and I don't mean mine, but, but, but what you said is what started this conversation, yeah. the notion of recording of saying a life is worth something. Which is why as well, because I always feel that it's, a, it's a really it's a great thing that your plays now are in book form because I, I always feel that when, when someone writes a play and then they rehearse it, and you know, they cast it, they rehearse it, and they stage the play for, it could be a maximum of seven yeah. nights, you know, if we're not going on tour. And then it's done. It's gone. Yeah, it's done. It's not like a film that you can watch again and again and again. It's it's done. You were if you're either there on the night, well done. If you if you're not, you missed the boat. Yeah. But but the fact that they're in book form means that something can, is preserved. Something remains. Yeah. After, yeah. After no, there's no doubt that would be a consolation to me because, the, as you said, and you properly identified the very nature of the act of making theatre is it's ephemeral. It happens yeah. and it passes. Yeah. Um, and so it's 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 great to have a record of it. I keep uh, very little of by way of documentation uh, but of all the productions I would have been involved in at Red Kettle or as a writer independent yeah. of Red Kettle what I love to keep is the poster um, oh. but the, just as something that says yeah. well that happened yeah. and that's, a, that's some kind of record yeah. of it. as we're speaking we're in the snog in, in Tully's that yeah. used to be McLaughlin's and when I came in here earlier, I was waiting for you and I was just looking at some photographs on the wall and up as, as we're talking it's behind me is a photograph of the cast of the revival of the Salvage Shop, uh, which took place in 2006 yeah. to mark the reopening of the theatre. Yeah. And so there's a photograph of that cast, uh, John Kenny and Donald Farmer and Frank Grimes and a few more of them. And like the photograph has, is, is practically you know, one of the very few things that's left right. of that production. Yeah. Um, and that's okay. Some people would say that's just as well. <laughs> Um, but for me, the old poster is some kind of record. Yeah. I, I accept totally that the nature of the theatre, making theatre, is it's passing. It's live in front of you and then it's gone. Um, have you ever thought about making, uh, writing a film or writing on that? Have you done any of that? Yes and no. Uh, the no part of it is obviously there aren't any. They're not. Okay. But, but, for instance, we were talking about the salvage shop, and interestingly, we're talking about it in oh, this pub. Yeah. Um, when it opened in 1998, 20 years ago, next, 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 next year, year. Um, I remember sitting in this pub because I didn't have a phone at home. In the yeah. week after it opened, or in the, during the course of the run, yeah. uh, the, the, the phone here in McLaughlin's was my office. Uh, I went on a bit of a tear for as I normally would do at the time when a play opens yeah. and you know there's a huge amount of years of work going into it, and so I disappear for a week or two and and but I I was hanging out here and the phone started ringing and this as I said was the office yeah. and amongst the people who rang that week were uh, Gabriel Barnes' agent right. Terry Hayden who who said she thought that Gabriel would be interested in having a look at this um, for some kind of future life. And would I send him a script, and she gave me a false name, send it out to somewhere, yeah. wherever the fuck he was. Um, but more important than of more substance, uh, Jim Sheridan's brother Peter, uh, uh, who was a theatre director, um, 
Peter saw it and thought that Jim would be interested in it. And I was sitting here one evening during the second week of the run, and, if, and I used to give everyone this number. I think it was 874506. <laughs> <laughs> Call me at the office. Someone confirmed um, that, yeah. And, and Jim Sheridan rang here, um, and he, he was saying that Peter had seen the play and would have been interested in talking to him about the possibility of making a movie of it, you know. And I was going, yeah, broadly. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and so a whole conversation happened. It went nowhere because oh. Jim Sheridan and, and Noel Pearson, Noel came to see the play. They had worked together on My Left Foot yeah. and on uh, the field, yeah. and uh, they had split up. And Noel was interested in the play, and Jim was interested in the movie. And to cut a long story short, it got very complicated for 18 months or so, but they cancelled each other out. And I remember Jim saying to me, because... Red Kettle had the license to the play. We needed to go with whomever was going to look after the theatre part yeah. of the enterprise. And so we had to part company with Jim. And Jim said to me, come back to me when Noel ditches you. Because yeah. um, he will. And I said, OK, thank you, got that. And by the time I got back to him, after Noel did indeed yeah, ditch yeah. it, um, uh, Jim, or the brass off had been made. Okay. Uh, with Pete Postlethwaite, yeah, another band brass one, band yeah. thing, yeah. and so Jim said, "The moment has passed." It's done it, um, yes. And subsequently, I remember I'm about I'm nearly sixty now. So about on my fiftieth, around about my fiftieth birthday, I said, "You've never written a film script," and I had a story, and uh, it wasn't a play, and I wrote a movie of that, a movie script. Yeah. And uh, I should have kept the diary because for three or four years after that. The film was being made and not made, and you know, uh, and who got interested in it at one point? We used to have great fun at and Ballylanean laughing at this. Was that Australian, the little one? She's a singer, an actress. Kind uh, of. Yes. Um, uh, through a connection of mine, who wanted to make the movie, he was a film director. Yeah. He worked in theatre with her in Australia. Gave her a script. She was deadly interested oh. in it, but I think her agent. Uh, put her off it because there was no money in it Right. but for months we had the Winnebago parked uh, between the <laughs> church and the pub in Ballylanine saying she's on her way Kylie's coming yeah. look it's a different industry uh, that yeah. and, and if you if you sat back and thought about it you could get very upset so come here, it brings me on to it brings me on to a, um, a question um, let's see we're going to get a bit morbid here hmm. right for the next two questions it's a really quick question just to lighten up just to lighten the mood <laughs> just special Christmas special uh, keep reminding me of that <laughs> yeah yeah Christmas special I could sing insert some jingle bells in the bleak midwinter I could give you a what's your favourite Christmas song go in the bleak midwinter is it that's our favourite yeah. oh yeah and I'm not going to sing it but no. I will sing it in the church choir in Ballylanine on Christmas Eve so it'll all be there this is an ad <laughs> this is an ad for Ballylanine I don't even know what that is but anyway um Okay, morbidly, tomorrow you are walking across the new key. Bang, hit by bus, you're gone. No more Jim Nolan. The key, are we talking about? The key, the key that's down the there. The key right? river? No, the, the, the key, the new key. In my childhood, that was called the key river. What's new about it? The road, the road is new. The layout of the key is new. The new. Ah, I'm not saying, right. I'm not, I'm I haven't not, been I'm in not town for a while, I must have missed something. <laughs> I'm not kidding about the river, I'm kidding about, about the quayside. The bus hits you. Mm. And, um, Splat. Yeah. Have you got, what's what's your biggest regret? Ooh. This is a pause. This could be another one pause. of those pregnant pauses. When this is when this goes out on the air, you'll have answered straight away. Yeah. <laughs> oh, see, this is the silence is it? Well, yeah. I, no, I, I generally don't do much editing. I, I generally don't do silence much editing at all. 
Yeah, I think the silence is good, and this is me playing for time, trying to think of what I would regret. Yeah. I don't know that I have any that I, you know, it's not, I honestly, first, I'd be lying if I had an instant answer. Okay. So I'm fine. being honest with you now, as I'm certainly considering and saying, well, what is it you'd say if someone asks you that? And I'm, I'm struggling for it because one of the things is, I probably, first of all, regret a lot of things. Okay. Um... But if you said to me, what's that one thing? I'm afraid to say that I can't think what it is. Which means that things happened along the way that you regret, but, but, mm. but nothing that was so monumental uh, as if t- so much that it stayed with you for the rest of your life. Everything has a way of fighting. Life has a way of getting through. Time heals all wounds. And yeah. stuff, so. I can tell you, for instance, and it's, let's talk about it to see if it is a regret. Okay. So I was very close to my dad, mm. and he died in February the 2nd, 1997. And he died at a gather around 6 o'clock. And it's interesting that I was, you know, I had a... Because I worked in Red Kettle, um, I was... I, ha- I didn't work in a factory or a shop or a teacher. Mm. So I was in... I could, to some extent, mind my time, you know, be in charge of. And so I took a lot of time out to be with him and so yeah. forth. And on the afternoon that he died, um, just that Sunday at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, he went to, uh, he was taken from our house, um, and he went to uh, the hospital. Yeah. And then I remember a nurse out there saying uh, that she figured that he would have another few days. And, and so we set up this kind of shift system. Um, yeah. And because I was free, relatively, uh, I agreed that I would do the night shifts. Okay. And so I left the hospital sometime in the middle of the afternoon, on the notion that I'd come home and get a few hours kip and go back in again. Yeah. And you can see where this story is going. Uh, yeah. I came here to McLaughlin's, Tully's as yeah. it is now, and I had a pint. And as soon as I got here, the phone rang. And it was my brother saying, you need to get back out. And my, another brother of mine, Michael, was with me. And we drove back to the hospital and he was gone. Yeah. He was dead. But, but that wasn't the point of the story, by way of regret. The point was that around about... You know, after the initial thing of when I went in there, I didn't know if he had died. Mm. And then the obvious, uh, he, he, he was gone. Um, and then when the dust settled a little bit and people left the room, I stayed with him and had some time with him on my own. And I remember taking my hand in his arm and just touching his, his arm. And I, as I'm touching my arm now, I can feel uh, my hand touching his arm, his okay. dead arm, wow. all those years ago. It's 21 years ago in February. And saying to him, I love you, Dad. And that was the first time I said it. Okay. So, you know, if you said to me, you get knocked down just at the moment before you go, do you have a regret? Would that be one of them? Do you know, I'm not sure, Dan, because even though I was conscious that it was now half an hour after he was dead, I was telling him for the first time that I loved him. I have never been in any doubt that he knew it. And I have never been in any doubt that he loved me, even though he had never said it to me. Okay. And that tells me it's partly to do with the generational thing. Yeah. You know, we didn't have words necessarily, we didn't necessarily articulate what we felt. Yeah. But I was never in much doubt about that, which is why I can't say with any certainty that that's what I regret most. But I was very conscious that that was the first time I said it, it was half an hour after my father died. And I'm consoled only by the fact that I think he knew okay. that of course I loved him and that I was always sure he loved me. Well, let me ask you a personal question, so um, <laughs> not for the first time yeah. in this. Uh-huh. In this, Have you 
told your own children that you loved them. When was the last time? I only had one girl. Uh, um, That's right, Megan. Yeah, and I would. Uh, I she lives in London, so we don't speak every day. We'd only speak these days, maybe about once a week. Yeah. Um, but we'd be in touch by that. I got WhatsApp. Oh, WhatsApp. Oh, wow. Are you, yeah. in, are you in a group yet? That's so cool. I'm actually in a group with the choir, but let's not go back to the choir. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. So I'm in a WhatsApp yeah. group with the choir, yeah. but I got the WhatsApp thing so I could have the free phone calls. Yeah. And we, like everybody else, we die with the delays. Okay. You know, nothing comes free. There's huge delays when you go, hello, Megan. There she comes. Yeah, yeah, and then, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hi, Dad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, yeah. You know, and you're already on to the next like question. Sky News, yeah. But, but yeah, in every conversation, I would tell her I love her, and in every conversation, uh, text or whatever, emails. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so did I learn something? Yeah, yeah. it's just, it's just interesting that you should say the generation thing because even though you said it yourself, I was going to ask you, did he ever say it to you? Because I think that we, uh, you know, I, I, I think. It is a generation. I think it is. Even like Trudy, whom I love very deeply, my yeah. wife, uh, we don't, you know, we wouldn't be brilliant at, mm. nor would we necessarily feel the need to be exactly. saying yeah. every time yeah. you're going out yeah. the door, love you. Yeah. Do you no, know what I mean? Just, it's just a word. But, but, but I do, and yeah. she does. You know, we know that. Yeah. So, so look, you're, you're actually getting hit by a bus, right? You're in an okay, office. Okay, back stage. to the you're bus. In, you're in an Am office. Am I dead yet or you're, am I just you're, you're lying gone. there? No, you're gone. You're gone. You're, you're finished. Okay. Um, um, private bus or it was or unfortunately it was a Harry Potter Keneally bus okay so I'm not too sure I'm not too sure there's anything of irony there but you've been hit by the Harry Keneally Harry Keneally the Harry Potter Keneally bus right and and what's going to happen is your family are going to get together for the, for the funeral right mm. and they're going to say shit does he have a song and then someone's going to say you know what at least that'll be one question I won't have to answer. <laughs> Someone else's problem. Well, hold on a second. It's not going to be now because someone's going to say, hold on, that fellow skeleton asked that question in a podcast once. Let's look for the podcast. Let's look for the podcast. Have you got a funeral song? And will it be on? Will it be able to just go online? We're going to find... Oh, well, it's there's a Facebook page called Snug Chats. Okay. There's only about 300 people that like it. But um, we can build on that. who cares? It's not about the likes. It's about history, it's about record. Yeah, yeah. So I'm asking you now: Is there a song that you would like? You see, I love, I love the, the Catholics do funerals quite well, I think. Um, and when Billy McCarthy died. There's, there's, there's a tradition, is there not, with theatre that, that when you when the coffin leaves the church, there's a standing ovation as you leave, like a final standing ovation. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be. I'm not a theatre for all the years I've worked in it. Like yeah. I've, I've never been that fond of that. that the monster, shite. the monster. <laughs> you know, I've just it's a personal thing. Okay, um, but but like, okay. So I, I think what they sometimes do is they applaud and sometimes they applaud. They applaud. Sorry, it's, a, it's applaud. That's what yeah, they do. Yeah, so, yeah. So, um, but I, I, I do. You're a man. I know you love music. Yeah, you, 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 I do and I don't. I have it in all the plays, and they're a central yeah, part of a lot of them. I'm actually, as as people who are close to me will know, a bit of a musical ignoramus. And I don't particularly like being that honest. I'd love to tell eyes and go, yeah, just nod when you say, I know you love music. I love I, the sound I would of it, but I assume that you, you you do because I, it seems to you you okay. It, it comes across like the, for instance, the 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 salvage shop. Yeah. is redolent with the celebration of the brass band yeah. and all of that stuff and there was a Pavarotti connection in that all of the plays 
it's like music is another character in it. Yeah. But if you ask me, like, what do you go away... And I, and I do have an answer to your question, so okay. I'm not avoiding it, but, like, in terms of just being someone who's big into music, like Trudy, who, uh, you know, my wife, would, yep. would uh, have a huge interest in, in traditional music and knows her onions, do you know what I mean? And, like, she know that I was... Uh, Paddy... What's the man, Paddy Maloney and the Chieftains? Okay. I love it. I love listening to it, but I don't yeah. go looking for it. I'm just a lazy bastard who do doesn't have enough time. Do, do, so do you have any... You're on the WhatsApp, but do you listen to... Um, iTunes. Spotify or any of those things? I don't even... Don't I, no, I can hardly spell them. Like, uh, uh, just, just, just to give it a Spotify. Darren, I think we need to go back and answer your question. <laughs> it's me pulling this a... This is snubshaps. This is not being... I'm running this. <laughs> Oh, you've got another glass there Sorry, waiting for you. For your listeners, I'm just having. Fun Answer here. the question, sir. What will, your, what will be your funeral song before I get to my little Spotify rant? Um, I, I think um, I'm a big fan of, and none of your listeners will, many, very few of them will know uh, Thomas More. Uh, there's a song called Loft in the Stilly Night. Okay. Um, and another one of his, uh, The Last Rose of Summer. Um, and they're old, sort of 19th century songs. Um, How the fuck would we find these songs? If, well, if, you, hardly, you might get them on if the Harry Spotify. Potter, if the Harry Potter bus hits you, right, and we only have a certain amount of time, and your family, more so, uh, has a certain time to plan your funeral, some poor bastard has to go and find these songs, 19th century. Not That's, only that, but they'll be sung live. Oh, like Des Manahan. Oh, Des is going to step in. <laughs> Des would know often is still united. It's just they're beautiful songs. Yeah. And if you you know you ask me, I don't think about this too often. But I, yeah, I, I, I'd lie to you if I said I didn't have passing thoughts about that kind of a question. Yeah. You know because that moment when you're leaving the church and you're going down under or wherever else you could be going to the creme, as my aunt used to call it, and she ended up there, my dear aunt Lena, down in the crematorium, but she called it right. the creme. I'm going to the creme, she'd say, um, and. Uh, <laughs> It's another story. Just, just uh, it's another story. But in, in England last week, a, a man working in a crematorium um, uh, fell asleep and was accidentally cremated. This happened. He was working there. He was working there. How did? I, I just saw a news an article. And it, was, it, was, it was posted on Facebook. My friend Donald would say, "Fake news, brother. Fake news." But it's not fa- Bigly. But fake somebody, news. and this is not this true thing happened, right? But this something such as Facebook. The first comment underneath it was, um, two people got fired that day." <laughs> Are you serious? hundred percent. I promise you. I'm kind of. I think that's something that you're shit. No, me. no, I'm not. I'm not joking. It actually did happen. Um, so but, the guy's but working in the crematorium. Somebody working in the credit union. Credit union. <laughs> Much the same thing these days. Much the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, anyway, so we we have your song. So that's that's on record. Um, you're afraid that of that? Uh, fr- f- oh, oh, oh! But how could it be this different tomorrow when you don't really listen to too much music? See Spotify in the past, right? And this is only going back to like the nineties and stuff. If you want, That's if the you, past. if you, it is past. It's it's my main past, but it's eighties, nineties. Uh, if you, you know, you hear a song really, you like it. You go to a record shop and you try and order it and stuff. Mm. And it, there's a, you know, you, you actually earned the song or the album when it, when it eventually came to you. But now on Spotify, there's like twenty five million songs. So really, and nobody. This is the bit that bothers me, and I, I genuinely don't understand it. So not to cut across you, yeah. but I just cut across you. Do does the artist get paid anymore? 
Yeah, but just just cent per. Yeah, it's small money. You need to be. You need to really be listen to like minutes time before yeah. you're going to get yeah. a minute. So yeah, it's it's. A, but that's just uh, the evolution of technology has killed. But that but but nostalgia is a powerful, is a powerful warrior because it's coming back. The record is coming back. I, cassettes will come back. I think the I think all of this stuff will come back as people get tired of just instant. I, I I have great memories of going to Strand Electric, the video shop, and just walking up and down the aisles looking for a video. Mm. And I love that a lot more than I love just swiping left and right on Netflix. Mm. You know, so I think convenience. People will get bored of convenience. Do you know? Um, interesting. In, I mean, you have not your own column, but on the. When you open the paper, yeah, it's on page two. Then it's a it? weekly thing. Yeah. Yes, it's your gym. When you open the paper, it yeah. follows that yeah. page two. Page two is yeah. after page one. Yeah, but there's there's often pieces there where you have photographs of like the eighties. Yeah, or, yeah. And and uh, if I'm looking at something on Facebook, um, I'd often it seems to me there's a big dispensation towards nostalgia mm. on Facebook. It's huge, um, huge. And I'm I'm surprised by that. Is it people? Because people of my generation, you don't, you know, understand it. But there seems to me there's a generation, like your generation, below, or maybe even two generations below mine, uh, who are much more obsessed with the past yeah. the, and that that recent past of their seventies or the eighties. Yeah. I, it's very personal for me because I, I the way I always say it um, is that I I I made a bit, I made an absolute bollocks of my life. In the, mm. in the noughties a lot of people have said that so yeah yeah exactly yeah people say it all the time at me darn you and but so I, I look back with rose tinted glasses on the 80s and especially the 90s so was that your sort of age of innocence well I, I was born in 1980 so so I really was I, I loved when I was born because um, just as we were getting to the 18, 17 and 18 excuse me again um the phone at least he said just excuse me this day <laughs> probably edit out all this no no sorry I remember it the phone just got invented the, 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 the air cell the mobile phone ready to go the 088 phones came out and it was still a, they hadn't even figured out how to, how to charge for text messaging back then and what year was that? around 1998 97-98 ok when they, when they I remember been up in St John's College rehearsing the Crucible with Red Kettle yeah in 1995 and Frida Ryan, and Frida, if she's listening to this, may correct me, but she seemed to have been in possession of this army <laughs> block, the you know, Second World War yeah, yeah, yeah. mobile telephone, which was about a foot long and had an area about another two foot long. But she said, you don't have to go to the coin box in St. John's College to ring the office anymore, yeah. because I was working down here on O'Connell Street yeah. for Red Kettle, but directing the play up there, and communications were established via this talking <laughs> And like I often wondered, was that the first of the mobile phones? Yeah, well, it might this have been. It was like it a might big have been. army, you know, Catch Twenty Two. Remember? Well, but can, you, can I just Sorry, say to you? Can I, can I just say to you? Because I, I love one thing I love about Christmas is the Christmas specials. Do you know everything's special at Christmas? Mm. Like celebrities suddenly get involved in things that celebrities usually get, like blockbusters. Suddenly you have a celebrity edition of blockbusters, right? But also things are longer. See where I'm going here? I think I do, but then again, so I've had we're, three or four pints. We're going to take another break now, and oh, we're back okay. for our next part. Excellent. Yeah. We're, we're back for part three. Um, Didn't know there was going to be part three. It's a Christmas special. It's a Christmas special. I'm kind of like your Brendan and Carl, aren't I? 
<laughs> no, no. What do you? What do you? By the way, what do you think of um, the, the the new McLaughlin's toddies? I love it. I love it. Um, I because I live in Kilmac Thomas now, yeah. the outskirts of Kilmac Thomas. Uh, one of the great delights, apart from having this couple of hours with yourself, <laughs> just that it's happening in McLaughlin's. Yeah. Um, I've spent the greater part of my working life on this street and I have yeah. a uh, huge, hugely intimate relationship with the street. We, apart from the work in the theatre, yeah. um, and, and before the theatre there was the other building up in Garth Lane 1 where Red yeah. Kettle had its first office, yeah. um, where I wrote Moonshine up in an old studio up there. And then we had the Red Kettle office where they, there's a chipper there. Every time I look in, there's a different chipper. There. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But we, we, in the great days of Red Kettle, that was our base. Um, and then, of course, when we weren't working in in, uh, in two doors up, we were drinking here. So I have wonderful memories of this pub and this place. Um, and uh, it's great to be back here. I think Tully's have done a fantastic job. They have. They've preserved everything of the character of the old yeah. place and given it a sort of just a new look. Yeah. Um, it's thrilling for me, even though I very seldom get to come in here now, that on an opening night of a play across the road or during a run and I pass and yeah. I see all the actors coming over here and I'm getting into my car and heading for Kilmac, yeah. that the play or the place is still thriving. That this Do you place, like living out that far? I love the community out there. Um, I, uh, I regret, I'm a townie. Yeah, you know, and and I suppose if I regret anything about it, it's just wandering around town that I don't get to do as much of as I used to do. Yeah, um, and and also a couple of pubs, including and especially this one. Uh, I love what people have. I don't know who owns it, so I don't know whether I should be doing an ad for it. But uh, the Welch's pub up the road yeah. in George Street. Um, Ted O'Regan, my old mentor, yeah. brought me in there thirty years ago for a pint one Saturday morning. And we had a first pint, and then Ted said, we'll have a second. And it was my round, and I ordered it. And uh, old Mr. Welch, who was there, uh, said, I'll get your glasses. And I said, sorry. And he said, I'll get the glasses back. <laughs> but he only had the two. <laughs> but it was a wonderful memory. But, they, but in fairness, they've kept it. That's, that's um, oh, it's Sean and Michael Watchmore. They, they, they originally it's came beautiful. to Waterford. They bought teenagers. And they've opened that one as well, and but yeah. they've they've kept similar. I love uh, what they've done. In, in fact, it. if anything, they've improved it. They um, have, yeah. I think yeah. it's a beautiful pub. A friend of mine that I hadn't seen in twenty five years said he was coming back into Waterford, and he'd yeah. love to meet me. And uh, we corresponded on email or mm. Facebook or whatever to say. And uh, he said, "Where will we meet?" And he thought I would say Jeff's or Downs, yeah. two pubs that I really like. Yeah. And I said, "Would you mind if we went to Welch's? And then could we go to Tully's? Right. And then we'll finish in Downs's before yeah. I get the butter bus back to Kilmac." Lovely. Um, the butter bus is uh, one Christmas Eve. I was in here, and uh, Trudy was at home, and she rang me and said, "Are you coming home?" And I said, "I'll be on the bus." She said, "Would you bring a pound of butter?" Right. She was cooking something, and yeah. so it was ever after that last bus to kill Mac for me is known <laughs> as the butter, butter bus. bus. Okay. Um, well, she was probably cooking some Christmas cake, was she? She was probably cooking something. Yeah. Yeah, she's a great baker and a great other things, many other things as well. Um, so, yeah. So, it's just, I, I find it interesting. Do, do you think that right now in, in, in your life, is there any shackles on you? Do you are you shackled by anything? I'd say by myself. I'd be. Uh, I'd say I'd be. I might necessarily be known as this, but I'd be innately cautious, conservative. 
in a way that I wouldn't necessarily admire. Like a lot of the plays that I write would be like that. Yeah. Um, but privately, I'd be cautious enough. And I, you know, like I took a lot of chances in my life. Mm. You know, I had a permanent pensionable job many, many years ago. Yeah. I said, fuck that. And, and I went off to join the circus. And mm. I had, mm. a, you know, a wonderful life doing that. Yeah. Um, but there's some corner of me... That you know might have been a bit more adventurous. Um, that was the question you asked. Was it? Well, it, I, I was checking to see if you had shackles on you because I, I find that. Um, <clears throat> sorry, that's a refinement of what. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Yeah, no, like, I I'd say the only shackles are yeah. So I did give you the right answer. <laughs> yeah, but do, they're self-imposed. Do, do you feel that? How, how old are you now again? Sorry, I'll be sixty in June. Sixty in June. Okay. Yeah. That, yeah. that's, that's a big one it certainly is and it'll pass quietly yeah well okay six months away and I'm just I'm just going to bring myself back to a question I was going to ask you earlier on because you are quite introverted but I wouldn't call you shy what is it what, what how would you describe yourself in those terms because yeah. you can get up in front of a crowd and speak I've, I've watched you do that yeah. multiple times yeah I suppose there's a there's a, there's because I work in the theatre. There's an aspect of me that has learned a little about the performative nature of it, because I'd be like as a director and as a writer, you're always in the background. You're never. At yeah, but are you afraid of your own ego? Are you afraid of the idea of an ego? Are you afraid of the it's idea? Great question. Of yeah, it's a great question. I tell you something. I I figured out pr- pretty quickly uh, about about the nature of what I do is that it is ego-driven. Mm. Um, the very nature of putting a mark on a page as a writer or yep. you know, as a director or whatever um, is at the heart of it is, I often say this, that the Freud's, uh, Sigmund Freud's thing about the nature of creativity, that at the heart of it was a single sentence, Mammy, please look at me. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It's profound, yeah. by way of, yeah. of, of, of an accusation. Yeah. Of an accusation. Right. He didn't mean it that way, but I've always thought, took it. God, the fucker is right. <laughs> yeah. And I don't mean, he, and nor did he mean Mammy yeah. in particular. Oh, yeah, yeah. But that notion of please look at me. Yeah. And I think I had to figure out quite early on, um, and that's why your question is a great one, that yes, that's the truth. It is please look at me. Out of what need, out of how many needs, who knows, but please look at me. And so my question was, if you're saddled with that, and that's, as far as I'm concerned, a defect. Yeah. If you're saddled with it, it's what do you do with it that justifies it? Okay. And so I accept it, that the primary need okay. for me as a writer is I write for myself. Yeah. I write out of my own need to put some sort of order on the chaos of my own thinking or of my own life. Mm. Um, and that I'm canned. When I go into a room, and I remember doing this as a kid, on a Sunday afternoon when my parents would have gone out for a spin in the car and they'd say, you're coming with us, Jim? And I'd say, no, I'm grand, thanks. And when they'd be gone, I'd start writing. Okay. Um, and some sort of anxiety, some sort of terrible anxiety would be calmed by writing. Right. And that's never gone away. That, uh, the, that sense of just that, that things will be somehow okay if I can write it down. But did you always know does the Walter Tevis um that's their parents' name? Um The Hustler. The book The Hustler. Mm-hmm. He wrote is a is a line in that in that where he wrote, That's what the whole goddamn thing is. 
you've so it's about your career you've chosen what you want to do and not a lot of people do that so the very fact that you knew what you did you always want to be a writer did I you always want know to know that since I was about maybe 7, 8 or 9 or 10 I can't remember you know yeah. the way you don't write it yeah. down this is the day there wasn't a moment okay. but I always have known that for as long as I've been writing since I was a kid yeah. uh, that it it made things somehow okay Okay. That it was some sort of balm, the notion of being able to express myself. Yeah. Uh, even if initially it's primarily driven by the ego, what I never craved was, look at how good it is. Yeah. Someone saying to me, whether it's a review or not that I don't admire and respect yeah. and you're always grateful for it. Yeah. But actually that before ever anyone else read it, that the writing of it down, the marking on the page was that somehow calmed me. And it's why I, people say, well, why do you, why do you do this, that, and the other? Um, I only do it for myself. Okay. I have no claims of, you know. Well, okay. So I you hope you. that someone else gets off on it in some way. Yeah. You know, but it's for me. It's for me to keep myself okay. So before I get to the question that's in my mind, do you know when you're like in Leaving Cert English mm. and you're asked to study a, a play or a novel or a poem? Mm. And the teacher will ask you for ask you a question how you interpret it a certain way. Yeah, yeah. Do you like the idea of your work being interpreted in many different ways, or do you have you got a theme in mind when you sit down at that typewriter or keyboard or wherever you use? Do you want to? Is there a message first and then a story second, or is a story first? No, there's, there's no message. The message is for the Western Union. Sam Goldwyn. Okay, okay. I love that. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, yeah. And you'd be lying if you said you didn't have the hope in some way that something you were saying would be in some way meaningful. Resonate some, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. mostly, it's got to be about story, telling a story, okay. and in the hope of engaging and entertaining an audience. And, and unlike a novel, where you, the reader can put it down and say, I didn't like that. Yeah. And like, you know, they open a novel, going up to bed or fucking sitting on there on Sunday afternoon, you read a book and go up to page 23 and they put it down. The audience are stuck in the space yeah. with me and my play yeah. and those yeah. actors. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's, it puts them in a fairly invidious position. So you'd yeah. be hoping, like, if they're paying their 20 euro, that you have obligations. to take something from uh, it. Well, whatever they take from it, that at the very least, the primary thing has got to be that they're entertained. entertained yeah. It's yeah. a story that you hope will sustain their interest, and Which, that's the that's the fundamental. We part. mentioned I mentioned a word there in the in the break that one of my favourite words of all time, um, verisimilitude. Mm. Which, um, as and what did I say to you when you said the word? Well, what did I say to you? You've been too kind to me now. You can't remember you've been too generous. I said, what does that mean? Well, no, yeah, but... <laughs> I kind of got the broad thrust of it. Yeah, but no, but I think, I think you wanted to hear my definition of more than anything else uh, because you have a story to tell about it, possibly. But uh, the, the one that, that I compare to is... Well, actually, Winterville this year uh, had a launch night and invited all the media and I felt that they had the wrong Santa. The Santa didn't have that verisimilitude, which is... It's 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 that we know Santa yeah. doesn't exist. If you break down the word, is it something like the appearance of truth? Yes, and genuinely, Darren, that's I'm exactly, not, I'm that's not, exactly what it is. Is it's it? The, it's the I'm appearance. It's the appearance of truth in the absence of definitive truth. So it's, it's okay. A, so basically, so we we'll know that. 
We're good on yeah. that. Yeah, so we know Superman doesn't exist, but when Richard Donner made Superman in 1977, he was governed by that word verisimilitude. He wanted to make you believe that a man could fly. So... Brilliant. Do you have... I'm fascinated by the writing process, and and, and, and I am fascinated by this verisimilitude, because when you're writing, do you think about anything like that? What, what, what do you think about... Yeah, I'm driven by one fundamental impulse, um, and it's you know there's there's no you don't I haven't seen it in any books textbooks yep. about how to write a play or yep. any of that stuff. Maybe I should have read all those books, but I didn't. Um, when I was in telecom or the old department of posts and telegraphs yep. many many years ago, uh, I got the opportunity to take a year's leave of absence. I was only there for six or seven years. We used to work out of May Lane, just off Newport Square. Yep. And my dad worked there, and my grandfather worked wow. there. And uh, I came back from London, and I got a job there. And I was very grateful for it. And it was, should have been the beginning of 40 years of, you know, do the work, get yeah, the pension, yeah. and yeah. get yeah. the hell out of there. And at six or seven or eight years after I went in there, I got the opportunity to take... I was writing plays, starting to write plays at the time. And um, I got the opportunity to take a year's leave of absence, to go working with a theatre and education company in Dublin called Team. And it was a big deal for me. Mm. And I got the leave of absence, and then uh, I had to either come back or stay out. And I decided, you know, we were in the early days of Red Kettle, yeah. and TV Honan and I were trying to cook this dream. And, uh, and he said to me, um, if you want to stay out, we'll try and find the money. Um, and I remember I was getting paid something like, let's say, £200 a week. Yeah. in telecom yeah. or post office, whatever it was and he said I'll offer you I'll get you a hundred quid a week so it was a fairly significant drop, drop yeah. but man like the opportunity to do what you wanted to do yeah. was there and so um, I, I I said goodbye to the post office and the telecom and um, on the day that I was leaving uh, I parked my van in May Lane for the last time and I was talking to this man who came over to say goodbye to me Mick Devine was his name and he was my foreman yeah. wonderful, wonderful man who used to work one time in the circus and he said to me I remember talking about travelling as a musician in the circus mm. in the 30s he said the only way to see this world he said is real slow when he travelled with the circus from town to town the very nature of what they were transporting they could only go at so many miles an hour. Okay. And he said, that's the way to travel. Okay. Very slow. Yeah, yeah. He was a very, very wise man, and a man that I loved very, very much. Yeah. But on the day that I was leaving, he um, said to me, what are you going off doing? He said, I heard you. And I said, yeah. And he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm going off working in the theatre, Mick. And he used to smoke churchmans. He smoked 60 of them a day. And uh, he would divide every sentence he spoke into three categories, okay. each of which would be bridged by the dropping of the ash of the churchman mm-hmm. onto the ground. And so he went, I, he said to me, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going working in the theatre. And he said, you can't. He dropped the ash. You can't. And he dropped the ash. You can't put a man's life on the stage. He said. You can't put a man's life on the stage. He denied the, you know, the possibility of it. He just yeah. said it was rubbish. And Mick wasn't a uh, philistine. Mick was a great man. And he, not only he was in the circus band, but he was also in the city of Waterford, St. Patrick's Brass okay. Band. Very, very wise man. He said, it can't be done. And I said, thank you, Michael. <laughs> and off I went. And I've never forgotten that. Nothing, nothing 
has been more important to me in the 30 years I've been working in the theatre since than that sentence when he when he said you can't you can't do it proving him wrong or abiding uh, by what he said well uh, he had to be wrong okay but he was also right and that's why we're coming back a long way to where we started this conversation about what is the nature of truth you know what I mean is there a God yeah I don't know okay I don't know so can you put a man's life on the stage I don't know but I knew it was what I was going to do for the rest of my life was to try to prove not that he was wrong Mm. but to to actually rise to the challenge of it. What's the closest you've come to rising to the challenge? You try it with every play. Um, which which I link with the question I was going to ask. What is your proudest moment? What is your... Um, now, that's just me being presumptuous. Yeah. I'm almost presuming that your proudest moment... There is moment. a proudest moment. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, I, I think there must be, but I'm being presumptuous. There's a of possibilities that well, It's interesting, wrong. though, isn't it, that I presume that your proudest moment must be related to theatre. Is that... what? What's... My proudest moment in all my life. Okay. I just I just want to dwell on the fact for a second that... Am I, am I wrong, first of all, in, in suggesting that you're... or in presuming that your proudest moment is theatre-based? You'd be wrong about that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They're, so, they're all connected. It is an int- you know, I've been very lucky that the work I do is connected to my own life in a very intimate... But for anybody listening, and they, they know, they hear Jim Nolan, they think, plays. Mm. And, you know, it, it, you've got a very almost... Um, no, I know it's it's a very it's, it's in a vacuum. It's in, it's in, it's within Waterford, but you do have a very intimidating uh, kind of a presence about you. Do I? Yeah, you you kind of do. Darren. You, you kind of do. Not to me. But you kind of do. You kind of do. There's a, re- there's a certain reverence there, I think, which which is nice. But that's only so, one syllable away from reverence. <laughs> so, but people put, so people would presume uh, fatally that. Your proudest moment must be on the stage somehow, but it's, but you're saying that it's not. What would your proudest moment be? Do you could you think offhand? I, I would suppose the distinction between the proudest moment or the happiest moment. Maybe no, that's a different thing. Uh, you see, I know I know that so I know I know that when people mention happiness, they they immediately go to family and the birth of a loved one or getting you. you know. Yeah. So, but, okay, so you're ahead of me there. Fuck yeah. you. No, 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 but it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just again, being presumptuous. But, but proud is something that... Uh, I'd say the proudest I don't think, I don't think you can be proud of, of having sex with a woman and creating a child. I mean, everyone does that all the time, right? So you can be happy that it happened mm-hmm. and proud of what happened subsequently. She Good developed point. into an Good amazing point. human being. You're ahead of me all the time here. Yeah. But, Darren Skelton 3, Jim <laughs> Nolan, never. <laughs> But proud as in you accomplish one of your own accomplishments. Okay, in in terms of the personal life, yeah. so we'll distinguish, and quite rightly, you've made a very proper distinction between yeah. pride and happiness. Mm. So we'll leave that aside. Yeah. In terms of p- personal pride, I would say on the day when my father died, I'm sorry, not the day he died, but the day of his funeral. Okay. Carrying his coffin. Right. In my, and my brothers, I'd say this on behalf of my brothers and my sister, um, who all of whom, all of us who carried his coffin, mm. that was the proudest moment. I would have, if I had had a chance, and John Thompson will tell you this, like John said, well, you know, want to carry the coffin from the parlour to the here, and they want to carry it from the, yeah. you know, the hearse to the church, and from the church to the next day, and down to the... And I said, John, I said, I'll carry him down Broad Street if I could. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? 
So in that sense, the proudest, proudest now, as opposed to the happiest moment, and that's again the yeah. distinction that you've made. Yeah, yeah. In terms of instinctively, that's what it comes to. That sense of surge of saying, "He's dead, but he's not dead. Mm. I'll carry this body forever." carry it wherever we can, you know. And John was saying, well, within reason. <laughs> but, but, so that. But I, th I think in what you're saying there, you were proud of your dad. Good you distinction again. You're far too clever at this. You were, you were, <laughs> <laughs> but, you, but you were proud to stand tall and say, this was my dad. Yeah, I'm proud and of that. And I am that. proud to, to, to walk as far as I need to yeah. walk, to tell yeah. the world, this was my dad. Mm. And, and he was a great man. Mm. But what I'm asking is for you to scratch away at the surface of whether it's ego or anything like that. But maybe maybe you wrote a play that was particularly difficult. Maybe and, and again, maybe sure. you got through a particular difficult thing sure. in life and you you, sure. you came out the other side. Because not we don't often come out the other side in life. Good. Yeah, I hear you. So was there a time when you came out the other side? Mm. Well, in terms of the professional work that I do, if, yeah. if we are talking about that, I would say two if, two things if okay. I could. Um, in 1995, it was the 10th anniversary of Red Kettle, mm. and we were well established at the time. We were doing very well, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And I wanted to do, to celebrate our 10th anniversary, a production of a play called The Crucible by Arthur Miller. Yeah. And um, we got the rights to it, and then... The Miller's agents in London, not his American agents, his London agents, came back to us and said, the Abbey have come in and they want to do a production of them. And because it would be on a much bigger scale than yours, we're going to withdraw the rights okay. and we're going to give them to them. That's right. Okay. And we could have fought them in the courts because although we hadn't paid them the cheque, we did have a contract. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the cheque would have been following. And the cheque always only follows after the contract. Obviously. Yeah. Um, but the Abbey came in and they did it before us. And TV and I sat down. No, it was Liam Rellis, actually. TV was gone by then. It was, uh, it was Liam Rellis. And we had to make a decision. And I said to Liam, I said, let's do it after them. Okay. And, you know, the board were talking about, well, they've, you know, it's the Abbey and yeah. they've got the, maybe we should admit defeat. And, and if a couple of us said, including Jim Daly and a few more of us, but but the whole board said, well, you know, who gives up? Let's do it because that's the play we want to do. And we did it. And uh, what was great about it was it, the, the one thing that I was proud of was that we did it yeah, and that we made that kind of decision about yeah, it that brave. said, our operation is not based on O'Connell Street or Abbey Street in Dublin. Mm. It's here in this city in Waterford and it's our 10th anniversary and this is a great play. That the board supported that was a great thing. Okay. That we did the play, that it got reviewed by several national newspapers who compared it extremely Very favorably good. with this multi, yeah. you know, much more yeah, well-financed yeah, yeah. production. We're also a great source of pride. But actually the greatest source of pride was that it was a cast of 21. And we couldn't afford to pay 21 professional actors like the Abbey could. Yeah. So what do we do? Do we not do it? No. We had 11, I can never remember whether the 11, it was 21, but whether the 11-10 was 11 professionals or 11 amateurs. Okay. But it was a combination of professionals and amateurs who brought that play to the stage. Um, it was, you know, hugely well-reviewed. There was a heat wave in Waterford at the time. It was the first time we had done summer theatre wow. at Garter Lane, yeah. and we packed it. Wow. Why it worked was partly out of our conviction 
that it was worth doing. But why it really worked was out of that communal thing, which I spoke about at the beginning of this interview, where that group of people, those 21 people allied to the other 20 people working around mm. the production, believed, not that we were going to beat the Abbey, but that this was a play worth doing. Okay. And the thing that I adored about it was the collaboration between the professionals and the amateurs. Anna Manahan had worked the week, the year before on a wonderful production of a new Bernard Farrell play for Red Kettle, Happy Birthday, Dear Alice, and she was well paid for it. One third of what she was paid for that she worked for on um, The Crucible, because we couldn't afford it. Yeah. We paid all the professionals the same wage, we paid the amateurs nothing. Yeah. And I remember saying to Anna Manahan, Anna, look after these young people. And she said, leave it with me. And that kind of mesh of mm. the amateurs and the professionals. Paddy Green, whose photograph is in this snug as we're talking, yeah. Paddy was in that play. And he said, Jim, I never fucking acted. I said, you'll be acting now. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Paddy played a, 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 a guard, prison guard or something mm. in The Crucible. Uh, there was a black woman in that play who, was, um, who was, had never acted in her life, but we needed a black person. And there were so few black people in Ireland, yeah. let alone Waterford at that mm. time. I remember my daughter Megan was five years old at the time, and the lady who played the part had never acted in her life yeah. was a friend of Megan's mother, Sue, right? Mm. And she came to Waterford because Sue said, well, she's black and she can walk, so can you make her act? Okay. And I said, thank you, we're winning now. And, and she came out to our house, and it was the first time I'd met her, and Megan is gone, it's five years old, she's touching... Uh, Camilla's skin and she's gone black she black wow for the record I'm not touching <laughs> like there were so few but, but my, my yeah. point about it is, sorry I'm rambling now but my point about it was this was a, just a, a group of gorillas G-U-E-R yeah. who came together to Good make something um, and I would say the result of that was something that I'm extraordinarily proud of but I find it fascinating because like, I I am, um, from everything that I know about you, I've never, I've always got the impression from you that you're at odds with yourself, right? You, you just, like, even, even answering that question now, there was never even a question that you're going to answer which one of your own plays. It seems to be that... Your first instinct is to tank somebody else. It's to... Well, no, I did have a second part. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. No, but it, it does seem that you, you are at odds with yourself. It means... Well, not really. I'll tell you what it is, Darren, and we may get to talk about There's a play, Dreamland, that I yeah. love to talk about. We'll come back to that. Here's what, why I don't write poems and okay. I don't write novels. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Uh, why I make plays yeah. is the collaborative thing. I'm fucking... I adore that. You like you like collaborating with people? It's It's... It's the joy of the theatre for me, um, is that it's not me in a room on my own. I, I have to, as a playwright, I write the first part on my own. Yeah, but as part of, sorry, I'm cutting across you, but I have to ask, is part of that because you left a team job in Telecomerin and you missed working with a team? There's no doubt. I think that if you ever decide to stop journalism and go into maybe psychology or something like that there's a lot of money to be made by you <laughs> you yeah. do have a great finger on the pulse of what goes on I I am as you said earlier as we agreed I'm introverted I'm private yeah. I don't go you know yeah, yeah. 
seeking. You don't seek out this kind of thing. No, not at all. But I, and I also recognise it's part of the work that I do that you have yes. to talk about it. So, yeah. so that's a given. Um, but the uh, be essentially private and therefore comfortable with writing yeah. in a room on my yeah. own and blah, blah, blah. But what I adore is when that play is written, okay. that I go into business with it. And yeah. I don't mean business commercially, oh, but I know, yeah, the yeah, business yeah. Of, of working with producers yeah. and directors and actors and audience and the publicity person and this and that and the other. And more than anything, in the rehearsal room, where it's, it's not me just as a writer or as a director, it's me and another gang of people just trying to do something. And a shared enterprise, um, a little, you know, a little dream that we share yeah. together. Um, I, but I, do you feel the weight on your shoulders when you direct? Uh, maybe it's a youth art play, so you might you might direct some kids, or even you might you might direct some adults, right? Yeah. Do you feel the weight of reverence? And using that word again. How do you feel when you hear... I, I, whenever you do a play, and I am into the cast, and they say, oh, you know, it just feels so good to work with Jim Nolan. So when you hear something like that, which, what is it? What, what's the immediate thing that comes into mind? One, do you feel like a fraud? Do you feel that these people are wrong? I'm not what they think. Or do you feel a pressure? I am not who you say I am. Jesus. <laughs> Jesus, 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 Jesus was lucky enough to get nailed to a cross before he yeah. had the pressure of. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, but I'm just what I'm trying to say is that uh, literally dozens of people have said to me, dozens now, have said to me in interviews, I'm just so happy to be proud to be working with Jim Nolan. Mm. Mm. Do you feel. It'd be wasting my breath to ask you, do you feel that you're deserving of that? Because I think you would say no. Uh, do you know what? Just for a change. Yeah. And maybe on the basis of the... Is it four or five? It could be five or six now at this stage. Stop it. That's the whole idea of no, Snapchat. No, no, we're not, we have no, to tell four. everyone four. It's, this is four your second point. <laughs> yeah. Um, I am the Blackhorn troop. Go on. You know, drunk or sober, um, I, first of all, respect when people say that. Yeah. You can't say, well, bollocks, I'm really... Yeah. You know, because frankly, that's only the age as well. Yeah. Um, if people say it, they believe it. I take that on trust and yeah. I respect it. And, and, and I can understand that. I wouldn't, you know, if that's what they think, that's what they think. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that now. Maybe it's just at the age I am. Did I touch the microphone? Oh, no, I'm fine. Okay. You know, if, if people say it, and maybe there's good reason why they say it. Uh, I have a respect for my talent and for the gifts that I have. And blah. I think I'm decent enough to work with. Yeah. And I think at the heart of that is, and this doesn't change no matter who I'm working with, yeah. whether it's those kids in youth arts, whether it's an amateur drama group that I'm working with, or whether it's a full-scale professional production with whomever, doesn't make any difference because at the end of the day, we're, we're a few people in a room trying to do something, yeah. which essentially is trying to prove Mick Devine wrong. Okay. Or, or at least prove that possible alternative that you can put a person's life on the stage. We're at the same game. And the rules for that don't change. It's just you've got to work really hard at what you said yeah. versus similitude. Yeah. Trying to fucking act as if it was real. An audience daring, an audience being prepared rather, to pay 20 euros yeah. to say to me, 
they'll believe in something that's obviously not true. There are actors up there. Mm-hmm. The plays that I write, they don't, those stories never happened. I'm only making them up. Yeah. And adults are willing to part with their money to indulge me. So therefore, my job is to get that as right as I can. And that job is the same thing with whomever I'm working with. Yeah. And once I treat them with respect, why wouldn't they come back and say, okay, I like well, working uh, with Jim Nolan? Well, again, that's a, that's a long way of saying that. You know, no getting away from you. <laughs> no, no, but it's 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 a long way of actually you're running away from the truth in, in one way. But I just I, it occurs to me that there is an easy way to put a man's life on the stage. There is a direct route to Go putting on. a man's life on the stage. If you had the answer to that, I'd be very interested in having. And that's putting your own life on the stage because who can argue with the fact? Yeah, so yeah. yeah, how autobiographical have you gotten close yet to being? Fully autobiographical, mm. or even mm. jokes, work jokes aside, Darren, yeah. and this may or may not appear in your tape. I hope it does. It'll all I am loving this conversation because of the nature of the questions. Mm. Um, I have to say, it's a fucking joy, and it's up to you whether you yeah, put this no, in. Good. It's a real joy to have the conversation because of just what you're asking. Yeah, because they go to the heart of what we're up to. Yeah, what I'm up yeah. to as a writer, and never yeah. mind whether it's Jim Nolan, but whoever's name is on it. Um, they're great questions. Okay. And I just want to record that whether it ever turns up or not. Okay. The autobiographical thing, um, I would have been resisting that for years and I'd say, uh, no, they're not to do with me really. Um, and increasingly, um, I would say that, I mean, bits of me are in all of them. Yeah. I've yeah. never wanted to write, nor have I ever written, nor do I ever intend to write. The autobiographical play. Okay, we'll come back to that in a second. That play. Yeah. But there's no question. There are elements of me in all of them. Um, And and inescapably, there's a... Even though uh, it takes other people... Some people have done theses. Theses. How do you do that? I don't know. I just say theses. Excellent. Well done. (laughs) Pat McAvoy's. Pat McAvoy's yeah. And there have been a couple of them and I you know, that's a different function yeah. for them to make a kind of sense of okay. the collective work and yeah. stuff yeah. like that. And yeah. there wouldn't be my place to do that. Okay. But I would in passing be able to identify because I'm now looking back more than I'm looking forward right. at um connections between the different plays. Um and it seems to me that there is something in common with all of them which is autobiographical yeah. uh, in terms of the themes of the stuff. Um, and that has to do, I think, with the possibility that we're, we're somehow potentially better as a society than we behave. Okay. That there is always that capacity for us as individuals or as a community to rise to be our best selves. Okay. Um, and that the more I see of how terrible the world is, the more I consider it to be my function to put down some small marker that actually out of small private individual acts, it's possible for us to see a better sense of ourselves, to be... You know, just reaching towards our potential okay. as humans, um, so that we're not always locked in our what's bad about us, what's negative about yeah. us, and and that's why the second play uh, of my own work, the ones yeah. of my own work, right? But there'd be, there'd be plays that resonate about my dad, like the Salvage Shop yeah. and and the, and the play called Brighton, which 
had an autobiographical or a, or a biographical starting point as a story about an aunt of mine, Kitty, yeah. who lived in London and was in a nursing home. And, and that was certainly at the heart of that piece. Um, and those are plays that are very close to me. Um, but, but there's a play, Dreamland, um, which comes to the heart of, of our collective capacity to be fucking cruel okay. and to be narrow-minded, you know, and bigoted. Um, and that play was set in the 30s. Um, during the Blue Shirt era yep. in <clears throat> Irish politics, and just not apart from the fact that they happened to be Common and Gael, the Blue Shirts, the Pin and Gael, it didn't yep. matter that it was them. It was a pretty dark time anyway. Mm. And frankly, on the other side of the political fence, De Valera wasn't much fucking better. Yep. Um, but why I got interested in that play, in writing that piece, that seed of it was very important to me. That it wasn't political; it was it was quite personal in some ways, not to me. Yeah. But um, where I got interested in it was in somewhere in I think 1934, on was it Christmas or Easter, somewhere in the early part of the year, up in a place called Moe Hill in County Leitrim, a priest called Father New Year's Day, 1934, Father Peter Conifree. Uh, had an anti-jazz march uh, in a fucking small village called Mohill in in Leitrim. And it was the beginning of what turned out to be a very successful campaign, the anti-jazz campaign. Um, So jazz music was coming into Ireland and there was a few people who'd heard it in America through immigrants and stuff and they started bringing back records and a few people started playing it. Not exactly a fucking serious crime, you know. Mm. Not exactly a crime at all. And this guy said, no jazz here. Mm. And he managed to gather a few hundred people together on New Year's Day in 1934 and send them around Mohill marching. And they had a placard up, uh, no monkey music here. No monkey music here. And God, that man who made that placard on that day must have felt so fucking proud. Yeah. Must have been a great day for him in his life when he put that placard up. And so that campaign percolated around the country, you know, and it seemed to me that it was right in the kind of country we were at the time that we wouldn't want that sort of monkey music here. That in some way they were fucking dead right, you know. And I thought, fuck them. So, so I was thinking of that, I just happened to hear that story. And, and then I was thinking of the blue shirts and I was thinking of the kind of country we were in the aftermath of that great revolution. Mm. I thought, this is what we've ended up with. This is what they did in 1916. Was it for this? Mm. And so those things are just public events. But I came across in my play, in my own mind, a man who said, screw that. Who was, and I put him into this fictional place uh, and I... He'd, he was an immigrant, or a, ne- a returned immigrant, rather, from America. Yeah. And he brought back, you know, a couple of caseloads of jazz records. And this was a man who had a very troubled personal life in Ireland and in America, but came home and was running this bar because it was his dad's bar. And, yeah. and he kind of stood up to that very narrow time in Irish life and just decided to have a little jazz concert in this play. Um, and I'm not describing it very well, possibly because we're on our second pint. Yeah. But 
I wish I could, I wish I was better able to articulate what I was trying to say in that play, um, which was just the innocence of uh, jazz music. The innocence of a man coming back from America with a troubled life and still had a lot of dreams in his pocket. And him standing up to these fascists well, it gives who a were running Ireland at the time. Yeah, but it gives a fascinating insight into the mindset that goes into the, the thought process before you sit down to write, to write a play. Um, because of the Christmas special, we've got our final part to come. There's going to be another commercial break. Oh, my God. And then, yeah, perfect. And we're going to go, we're going to go down to, because we might have just do two parts. So another, another break. We're back for the last segment in a moment. Um, so we're officially back for the final part of our Christmas special. It may not have seemed... Is it still Christmas? It's still Christmas. <laughs> it's still Christmas. It may not have seemed like... It feels like, like early January. <laughs> um, I just, I just to, to wrap up, because we're, we're finishing up in this last um, few minutes here. It's closing time. Oh, God, we've been here a while. Tully's. You're still drinking again, I swear to you. Would you go on to, like, would you be a shorts man? Did you ever be a shorts man? I used to be in the bad old days. And what, would you, what would be a short of choice? I remember starting off with... God help us, vodka and orange with my waddy. Right. You're too young to remember my waddy. No, my waddy's still going. Is it? Yeah. My waddy. My waddy. You're doing that for my waddy now? My waddy. It's <laughs> still going. It's vodka, like a, uh, vodka and, yeah, and then vodka and coke. Right. my specialist drink. Did it change you? It should drink changes you, doesn't it? It releases yeah, but, you. But sometimes with some spirits, it can really change you. It can unleash a demon you don't even uh, know is there. Darren, I remember drinking the old fucking... At a, WDS party and some girl I fancied and she didn't fancy me and out in the Egypt and bottle of I can't remember if it was tequila or Southern Comfort and been knocked down by a car in Colbeck Street and it turned out that the knocker down was Liam Murphy <laughs> <laughs> and he's been trying to do the same again and then okay. and then up to uh, <laughs> make my way when I recovered from that along the tech the old CTI building yeah and they had I don't know they're still there the the gates the still there probably gone but the empty bottle of the and I was just banging it along the and I was, I don't know what I was up to yeah, still there. and Johnny Cleary my favourite cop yeah community guard me and get in there get in and I didn't know him at the time I know him well since but yeah. uh, and he packing me into the car and they screwed me up I suppose you're going to beat me up now it was in the days of the heavy gang <laughs> yeah. and he looked at me <laughs> he didn't beat me up and they released me outside the Sacred Heart Church at um I suppose half six in the morning. Yeah. And Derek Breslin, my old friend on the... Uh, Eamon Breslin was my best friend and Eamon's brother Derek was coming home from wherever he was mm. and bringing me up to um, outside the parents' house in 32 St. John's Park and ringing the doorbell and dropping me there. And So spirits... No, I, I, I wouldn't be... Wouldn't be a fan of them, no. <laughs> <laughs> so they did unleash the, the inner demon. So. I suppose they did. But you look, they were there that time anyway, and they were going to come out somewhere or another. Do you know? Uh, before we come on to the conclusion, is I, I was speaking to somebody recently who told me about they were on a night out recently, and they they had a good few drinks, and they came home, and they invariably went to their phone to text women. It's a single man, right? But he was texting women at the time, right? Mm. Uh, he came home, he texted two or three at, at a go. It must have been one of the great sort of dangers of the old text machine. Well, it is, it is. But, Instant but what, what's the equivalent 20, 30 years ago? Well, we didn't have any way of 
thanks be to Jesus, mm. at that hour of the night, he didn't have any way of, I suppose it was landlines. <laughs> Imagine that. And so was father answering the phone, yeah. yeah. So I, I don't remember, um, you know, at, at that stage. By the time I got home anyway, when he fit for the bed. But what I'm asking you is, did, did you find... Does every generation find their own ways to get into trouble? Do men invariably seek out trouble? Um, I have no reason to think that. Okay. Um, and I, I certainly don't think it has anything to do with communication. You know what I mean? The, 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 the thing where these days, you know, the text or the email... Or yeah, yeah, it's so easy, do, yeah. Um, I have no experience of that, but... Before that, the last thing you'd want to be doing when you got home was suddenly trying to make contact with the person. Or <laughs> we had other yeah. things to be dealing with. I, I genuinely don't remember a, a kind of... We didn't have any format for it. There was yeah. no way. I remember yeah, yeah. when I lived in London, and I remember only recently telling this to my daughter Megan, who lives in London. Yeah. And as I said earlier, we can do the WhatsApp yeah, thing yeah. and all of that stuff. Uh, every Sunday night when I lived in London, I was there for about two years, uh, religiously I would ring home at half eight on a Sunday night uh, to somebody, usually my parents yeah. um, and possibly to a girl back home. You know, uh, I remember being struck one time making a phone call back home to some girl that I knew uh, from a telephone kiosk yeah. in Gladstone Park somewhere near Cricklewood. Um, and I was chatting away to her and thought I'd be really romantic now and I looked up at the moon over Gladstone Park and I said, that's the same moon as you're looking at, looking at. and I said, that's what connects us isn't that a good thing and she was kind of going I'm glad I didn't <laughs> I think that was <laughs> I'd say she's often glad she didn't get married to me <laughs> that was about as close as I got to um, genuinely, sorry I'm drifting now but your question is, <laughs> I, mean, I, I don't, I don't, we didn't have parallel forms of communication. Okay. I remember writing lots of letters home when I lived in London to yeah. my mother, getting letters from my father and from my mother, um, and, and writing letters to various people. Who are they still there. around, those letters? Are they still existing? At some point, I remember, after my father died, I can certainly remember coming across letters from him. Of, let me ask you this. When Oscar Wilde and, and all these type of people were alive, um, even Shakespeare, mm. all of these types of people, I don't think that they would have envisaged that anything that they did was any, of any huge significance. You know, maybe they did. But you often see whether it's Bronte sisters or something like that, letters that they sent or things that they did yeah, yeah. Were, were suddenly became significant a hundred years later. Mm. You know, it's, it's, a, it's impossible for you to envisage that or to visualise that anything that you do now would be of any significance in the future. You're just living your life the best that you can. Yeah, you will, by and large, most of us live our lives in the present yeah. tense, you know, and we look back, but we tend not to look forward too much you mentioned earlier I mean sorry is there a question there no 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 go ahead go ahead it's a stream of consciousness go on oh I'm impressed (laughs) well Uh, in terms of what will be around of me in the future yeah um, like it's certainly a source of some satisfaction that some of those we just we talked earlier about the ephemeral nature of theatre yeah 
and that seven I think of my plays are you know are published yep. and they'll at least probably be in the Waterford room if there is such a place yeah. of the Waterford library yep. long after I'm gone and maybe will be available archivally or through digital or whatever yep. the f- you know but they're there and and um, that's that's better than a kick in the arse um, it is that but what, where you really exist, I think, and, and you only really exist in the future, is in memory. Okay. Um, and one would like to think uh, that in, most particularly in terms of one's family, that, you know, that you're remembered mm. uh, by the people who follow you. Um, it would be very important for me that uh, my daughter, for instance, um, will have memory of me. Yeah. Um, and that that's, will be a presence in her life. She doesn't believe, as I understand it, in, in some kind of place where we're going to meet again in the okay. hereafter. Okay. Um, and so her accessibility to me in the future is going to be, you know, it's residing in her memory. Mm. And in, in maybe some, you know, in those books, I would think not really. Uh, it mostly be a memory of me. Um, and, and I'd also love to think, especially about young people, uh, that I've had the privilege of working with, the generation or yep. two that are coming up under me, uh, in the theatre, mm-hmm. that there will be a memory of me, um, and that will be as important to me as as any book or you know reviews or anything like that, or okay. the occasional academic studies that are done. Second last um, question: Why is Megan, your daughter, such a good writer? I'll, I'll, I'd be absolutely sure of this: um, that she's such a good writer because she's Megan. It's not, you know what I mean. It's hard. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and and I'm 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 really grateful and glad, just as her father, that that you've said that that she is such a good writer because mm. I consider her, but I can't be objective. Yeah. To be a really really good writer and a really courageous writer. She's intimidatingly um, good, by the way. Well, thank, she thank she has no idea who I am, but I've read a lot of her stuff and I and I find her to be, yeah, uh, good to the yeah. point of my own questioning yeah. what I do myself just just this weekend I read something that she wrote um, uh, it was a talk that she did for the London Museum or something oh. the Museum of London I think it's called and she wrote a personal piece that it was about her relationship uh, with London yeah. but in terms of her relationships with other people and I happened just to read it yesterday she wrote it a few months back but it, was, it, was, it went online or something yesterday yeah. And uh, I read it, and I was just I was extraordinarily admiring of the piece, objectively, yeah. insofar as it can be objective, yeah. but also uh, extraordinarily proud that she's my kid. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I do think I do think that she answers the qualifications of, or you know, that some way she rises to the need of what it is to be a writer. Um, but I, I'm very uh, admiring of her that er, way. earlier on I asked you about something that you're proud of and, and I can't think of anything that I'd be more proud of than my offspring following in my footsteps but you told me I couldn't talk about no but it hasn't but I don't think I, I don't think we're there yet I don't think I think I think Megan is probably still finding her feet in a way um, and maybe in five years time if I ask that question again there'll be a different answer well, well actually I would say about her qualifications if you like to be a writer I don't, I don't mean anything academic or anything she doesn't have any academic more than I do yeah qualifications um, 
but her uh, intelligence as a writer, yeah. uh, her honesty and her courage, um, I would say those are things that I am already in, and I won't be waiting five years because I may not be here in five years. Yeah. I'm already... Oh, but I, I, I did restrict you. When, you're, when I asked that question, I restricted you to just answering the question based on your own achievements and such because I, I did limit. But I, 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 do, um, I, I, I do think that it's, it's fascinating to watch an offspring. A strange comparison. I look at football players and then they have children and suddenly those children become football players. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. And I was speaking about this with somebody recently and I said, well... You know, if you're a football player and you have your heart set on your newborn child who's going to be a central defender, then I think that when, when you know at an early age that's who you want to be, then you'll, you'll, you'll put them in that direction or a vet or whatever it is. But I, I don't think you're the kind of person that would have ever have, have pointed Megan in that direction. No, she found her own way. Not at all. Is that genetics? Um, uh, why, why, why? That's the question I'm asking you. Why is she a writer? I would say out of the same need as myself and okay. maybe that is genetic or maybe okay. it isn't um, one of the things that I lacked and still lack is confidence yeah. as a kid yeah. and, and, and so I worked very hard when Megan was a kid in terms of trying to give her uh, a sense of esteem yeah. and of confidence and I thought for a long time that I had succeeded in that and I thought that was one of the things you could be proud of yeah. for instance even on a basic level forget about writing swimming Okay. She can swim. Okay. I can't swim. Right. And I was really fucking glad that I'd yeah, got yeah. swimming lessons for yeah. her. But I discovered actually as I got to know Megan as a young adult that much like myself, there was a veneer of self confidence and of sort of brash brahuha of sort of going mm. about the world. And I realized then as I got to know her as a young adult that just like myself, she didn't have any of that. That she was troubled and you know, like most young people are. Yeah. Um, and that she's managed to survive certain trauma in her life yeah. is something that, if you ask me, you're proud of things. I'm inordinately proud, not of me as her father, but of her as a young person. Okay. Um, and uh, I'd, be, I'd, be, I'd be fairly lost in my admiration of her, not as, you know, just in terms of her ability as a writer, but actually as a person, okay. to get on with it, to be able to uh, have tra transcended and, um, some of the trauma and grief that she's been through as a young person. Um, you'd be glad that you were a witness to, and maybe to some extent an assistance to her getting over that and getting through the dark into a bit of light where she can see, mm. I can write this down now. Here's me... Yeah, and, and I think that she, I think that you wouldn't allow yourself to feel this, but I, I definitely think that she would put a certain amount of uh, gratitude <clears throat> in where she came from to become who she is. You'd love to think so. I don't, yeah. You know, you'd love to think so. Um, I think that she'd owe that to not just me, but to her own mother. Of course. Um, and, and to her peers. Um, yeah. It's a struggle. Yeah. Um, there's a great line, and I'd, I'm struggling to think of it now. Um, be kind, be kind. It was Plato who said it. Be kind, because and I, I'd love to. I'm being unfair to him, even though he's 2,000 years dead, because yeah. I can't quote him directly. Be, but essentially, what he was saying was be kind, because everyone has their battles. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, and yeah. 
and I'd love to, he put it more succinctly than that, but I, I can't do it. But essentially that's what he was saying, uh, that it is a struggle. And this is going back to the very beginning of our conversation when we're talking about the religious thing, and, yeah. and if God was there, if there is a God, then he was a, yep. you know. Uh, <laughs> he certainly he certainly didn't make it easy for He's us. got a lot to answer for. He's got I, a lot I, to answer for. Yeah, look, I don't, I don't know about that. And I don't know really if there, you know, the, the notion of if there is a God up there is frankly of little interest to me most of the time. Yeah. And I'll tell you why is because at this moment in time, we're just talking about particular things in my daughter's life, but it's in anyone's life. Yeah. That fucking struggle to get through. Yeah. It's not easy. Like, just as there are for so many people, we're in a small pub at the moment, there's maybe only a dozen people here. Yeah. Each one of those people could tell you the story of their lives, which is riddled with uh, the struggle of being alive. Okay. And they tell you of friends of theirs who are dying in such and such a place. At this moment in time, I wake up and every day I pray for friends of mine who are struggling with their own mortality okay. at the moment to translate they're fucking dying okay they're dying um, a, 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 a woman that I know a dear friend of ours who's, who's 56 years old who uh, who did everything by the book and she's got this massively debilitating stroke that she didn't deserve mm. ask me that God kind of you know what kind of God would but then you extend that into all of the tragedy of this world it's a horrible horrible place on so many levels like for us as individuals and in the immediate circles that we live in and then extend that out into the wider world it's a fucking grief-ridden pile but 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 I don't care whether God organized that to be truthful with you I, I couldn't care less we're left with it if that's what he gave us, that's what he gave us. She, she, it. That, I'm pointing my fingers up. Let it be noted, he's pointing up. He is not, yes. That's kind of irrelevant. We're left with it. And that's where I come back then to the communal, that in some way this... I've never given up on the possibility that gathered together we are potentially better than what divides us. Um, and... That's a kind of humanist view of the world rather it's than... It's a very optimistic view, uh, to be fair, as well. It's a, it's well, you might as well, at my age, might as well be optimistic. Yeah, you've got a lot more optim optimism than I, than, I, than, I, than I thought you might. And I, I'm going to finish up on this one because I I, um, I think it's, it's, it's always good to finish looking looking onwards. And, and this podcast is going to go live in about four or five days, just before Christmas. So It's going to be an awful Christmas for the people of Waterford. You see, I, I no, no. I, I, I think podcasts and other things like it are very, very important, um, and a very strange reason. A lot of people are lonely. There's a lot of lonely people in this world, and we don't know, we don't appreciate how lonely they are. And technology has given them the gift of company. So whether that's watching a box set, or or reading lots of lots of books, mm. or listening to a podcast. Um, they feel company. It's artificial company, but they feel company nonetheless. And I like the idea of people 
being able to be in this now with us, sitting beside us, drinking a pint of Guinness or a pint of hope is what I'm drinking. And they're here. They're here beside Darren Skelton. They're here beside Jim Nolan. They're listening to what we've got to say because you've got, they've got every right to be here. So if you're sitting back in your bed or you're, you're walking out to Dunmore Road, you've got every... You know, you've got every right to listen to what we have to say, and I hope it's been of some interest to you. And as we as we reach the end of it, I'm fascinated as to see that Jim Nolan, 59 years of age, on the cusp of 60, um, <clears throat> are you working on something now? Yeah, I'd be always um, it's always working on. I was going to say I was always working on. I would always be working on a, a new play or a new story, but in fact. This year, the year just gone, was the first time since 2007 when if someone said to me, are you on the next play? I'd say, no, the well is dry. Okay. The well is dry. And um, a great friend of mine and a great mentor of mine, Tom Kilroy, um, a playwright, uh, said to me that he, he wrote a program note for the salvage shop and he yeah. talked about the... Uh, he quoted Van Morrison on the subject of patience, not patience as in hospital patience, but the, you know the idea of waiting um, and of being open to that. That the making art was a long-term thing; that it wasn't something you just kind of wake up in the morning and go, I'll trash out something now, and it did just, just that it was. So when the well is dry, you wait for it to fill again. You don't kind of go panicking and stuff. And if you don't have a, a new play, you, you wait. And if you don't have a new play ever again, then that's okay too. Okay. Um, and so this was the first time for about 10 years uh, this year that I didn't have uh, a next play to go on to as soon as the next one was, okay. as soon as the last one was out of the pot. Yeah. Um, and so I hung around. And then in your newspaper, in the Waterford News and Star, um, I'd been toying with the notion that since 1985 I hadn't been back to Waterford directly as a playwright. I hadn't written a play set in the city of Waterford. Yeah. Um, and I had a sort of a vague notion that I'd like to do that. Like when you're turning for 60, most of your miles are behind you and there's not a huge amount of them ahead. Yeah. Um, and I was just thought, I'd love to take a trip back and hear that Waterford voice on my pen again. And, but didn't know what it was necessarily and just said, well, we'll wait and see, mm. like you have to do. And then I saw a photograph in the News and Star um, of the Red Iron Bridge. And uh, it was a particularly dramatic photograph uh, that, very interestingly, doesn't affect... If you go out there, no matter what day of the week you go out there, it's always grey and miserable. Yeah. But the photograph uh, was very dramatic and the okay. colours were uh, Technicolour. Yeah. And I was struck by the photograph about a place that I'd never actually visited, okay. but that I'd, of which I'd heard so much, the Red Iron Bridge. And I was aware that it was so much a part of so many people's kind of childhood and teenage years. And I thought, well, if I do write a play about Waterford again, maybe that's the place that I'll set it. And so I parked that. And then I just sort of let it sit there and did what Tom Kilroy said you have to do, and which I always know you have to do. And I say this a lot to the younger writers that I work with, about the act of patience, of waiting, of taking it easy, but it will come in its own time. And, and gradually over the last few months, a story has been emerging about that uh, set on the Red Iron Bridge, but not back then in its iconic days. 
uh, these days, if you go out there, there's a big hole in the middle of it. There's a span missing. Yeah. And it's not that place that anyone goes to anymore. And so gradually has been emerging in my head a story about a group of people who are maybe 10 years younger than me, who are 50, who might have spent time out there in their youth and who are now uh, going back there okay. for a particular reason, to commemorate somebody who's no longer with them. Yeah. And it's set on the day after Waterford unfortunately lost the All-Ireland at the homecoming day. Okay. Do you remember that evening when, uh, uh, after we got bet by Galway, and there was the homecoming below on the bridge, yeah. or on the quay? Yeah. And I've set my play on the bridge at the same at, time, at 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock in the evening, when all the hoo-ha is happening on the bridge and the lads are coming on the quay, and the lads are coming across the hurlers, and they're being fated or not fated. Yeah. So it was a very awkward and a very delicate one, because we lost. Yeah. Um, so my boys are out on the bridge on that evening, and we'll see where that story goes. And that, that, that could be something... So, timeline, you're, are you in the process right now of just formulating the story? You haven't typed letters on the paper word, yet? Not a single word. Okay. But I have, Darren, written... Uh, at last count, it's a great thing about a computer. Um, I've written 33,500 words to myself about on that story. Okay. Just about it. I walk a lot, and I walk around the Greenway out. I live out yeah. in Mac and I have a, this old phone that I have. It has a wonderful thing on a voice recorder. So I go off walking, and when something occurs, blah, blah, blah. And okay. there's about four or 500 recordings wow. of those that I just type up, and it's a big a mess. Is there, is there a title yet? Uh, probably call it the Red Iron or Red Iron or okay. Red Iron okay. Bridge or okay. who gives okay. a shite. There's no one waiting for it, but I, I, I'll write it, and I'll write it real fast in the spring because all the muscle for that play is being gathered at the moment. I'm yeah, in okay. training. I'm in training. Very good. Took Very a good. night off to be with you. Good man, Jim. Good man. Good man. Good man. Jim Nolan. Cheers, buddy. Merry Christmas. Thank Merry you very Christmas much for your time. You. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks, Darren. To find out more about upcoming Snug Chats, visit facebook.com forward slash Snug Chats. Right, and do it yourself to save on what you need to make stylish updates to your kitchen and bathroom. We do it right too by offering Delta kitchen and bathroom faucets and accessories. Both feature spot shield technology so you don't have to worry about water spots and stains. Stop in today and save on Delta's Valdosta collection. It comes in a variety of finishes so you get the look that's right for you. Whatever project is next on your to do list, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's.